Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOT. And this week we're going over UFC Fight Island 8, which is headlined by Neil Magny and Michael Chiesa in a pivotal welterweight belt. Uh, this is the second of three events that the UFC has in a seven to eight day stretch. Um, I wish I got this podcast out a little bit earlier, but it is what it is. Here we are Monday getting this podcast out for you guys. Still more than enough time for you guys to digest these breakdowns and make up your own decisions in terms of uh you know which which side you want to be going with um as you guys can see i finally completed the studio setup there are a couple of things behind the scenes that i'm still waiting to get in the mail but uh i'm happy with how it turned out you know what i mean i i think it looked exactly how I, or it's looked much better than i expected it to look when i initially planned this type of setup out and uh yeah I'm, I'm super excited super happy with how it looks i'm getting a ton of positive feedback from everybody um speaking of feedback absolutely horrible audio quality on the last episode and i sincerely apologize for that just uh, a lot of the levels were getting messed up as i was uh, rearranging the studio and i didn't even realize that one of them was truly off and uh it absolutely destroyed uh the the audio for the majority of the breakdowns but I fixed it. The this audio sounds much, much better this time around. Um, I've tested it out. If there's still issues, God damn it. But I, I just don't feel like there are. So uh, shout out to everybody that tried to lend a helping hand and gave me any tips and pointers in terms of how I could fix something like that. Um, just shows how loyal and, and die hard a lot of you guys are out there. And I, I greatly appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I'm very much looking forward to this fight card coming up. Um, you know, a couple names sprinkled throughout it, a couple bangers sprinkled throughout it as well too. But like I said, a very, very intriguing matchup in the welterweight uh, division between Neil Magny, who's on a bit of a resurgence now, a three-fight winning streak, and then Michael Chiesa, who's coming off the biggest victory of his career today, where he was able to go out there and uh, win a decision against Rafael Dos Anjos. Uh, I believe that was way back in January of last year, so it's almost been a full year since we've seen him compete. Um, before we get into that though, let's go over my last, uh, event, absolutely horrible event on my end, probably one of the worst, um, not, not the worst, but, uh, so I've definitely come back from worse in the past, but, uh, this was a bad, uh, complete bad read everywhere on this card. So let's start off with the lock of the night play, which was the four unit play on the over one and a half and the Santiago Ponzinibbio and Li Jing Liang fights. It was looking good for about four and a half minutes there as they were playing patty cake the entire time, throwing a couple leg kicks, really trying to gauge the distance between each other. And then Lee goes out there and just uncorks a complete bomb on the chin of Santiago and uh, completely drops him and finishes him there right at the end of that that uh, first round. Uh, yeah, that one was quite demoralizing. Uh, but yeah, good one for Lee Jing Liang. Unfortunate loss for us there. That's minus four units. Let's keep moving things along onto the, the, the a couple of the dog of the night plays we had. Uh, the first one being the under two and a half in the Austin Lingo and Jacob Kilburn fight. We had 1.5 units at plus 113. Thought we were getting a ton of value there at plus money given these guys are, you know, finishers or get finished types of guys. And uh, Austin Lingo was damn near close to doing so in that first round a couple of times. Even in the second round a couple of times, he was uh, rocking and hurting uh, uh, Kilburn, but it was unfortunately not able to get the finish. He wins a decision victory there, uh, and unfortunately for us, that's minus 1.5 units. Moving things along, we had one unit on Matt Rubano at 
plus 135. That first round was looking damn good. Unfortunately, not even one judge ended up giving to him. But uh, if you guys were in the Discord chat for the Patreon, you guys know that I was talking about that. It was a very close round. Even though Matt Brown had a ton of top control and, and did some good damage from on top too, um, I felt as though Carlos Condit was the more active fighter, landing the better damage. Uh, and even ended that round on top, which uh, which definitely secured that round for him. And then obviously wins the second and third. Uh, yeah, Matt Brown got him down the way I expected him to. Um, I wish he got him down a little bit more. Um, but I truly think it was the, the cardio definitely f uh, catching up to Matt Brown there. And uh, I kind of overestimated his ability uh, to keep Carlos Condit down and do enough damage from there. Again, his cardio definitely caught up to him. And he just, you know, was... Uh, was fading as that fight continued to go on. Uh, also, another uh, dog of the night play away. I had one unit at plus 146 on Calvin Cater. Um, yeah, completely outmatched. Now, I went into that fight with that whole narrative of this is the first time that Max Holloway is fighting a guy with the technical abilities in the striking realm that Calvin Cater has and that there was no way that Max Holloway was going to get away with the way he's been outstriking some of his past opponents. We've seen him rocked and hurt a bunch of times against prior opponents like Jose Aldo and Dustin Poirier and I thought if anybody was going to be able to capitalize on that it would be a guy like Calvin Cater but Max Holloway came out there in that first round and just did not look back had a performance of a lifetime, a historic performance too. He landed over or threw over 740 strikes in that fight, uh, easily a record, um, and then lands over 440 strikes as well too, which is another record as well too. So uh, it took a historic performance for Max Holloway to go out there and absolutely dismantle Calvin Cater and make me look like a complete dummy. I know a lot of people are eating their words uh, who are backing Calvin Cater in that spot. And given everything that we knew going into this fight, I'd probably take the same shot again. Like, I, you just don't expect that type of output from Max Holloway from minute one all the way to minute 25. Like normally he picks things up as the fight goes on, especially in that third round is really when he starts to get things going. But I guess he knew in this fight against Calvin Cater, he needed to demoralize him right off the bat. And then the fight was going to be his the entire time. And it exa exactly was that. We had a 50-42, I believe, in there too. But I think the other two judges had it as a 50-43 Absolutely masterful performance from Max Holloway, and I will definitely think twice before I fade him next time around. And then lastly, we had a 1.5 unit parlay uh, that started off with Carlos Philippe in a decision that I don't think he truly deserved. Uh, however, we got lucky, got you know that leg of the parlay hit, and then the stupid, stupid, stupid side of me, for some goddamn reason, as much as I've been dec uh, uh, decrediting, decrediting, um just just completely uh, devaluing the hype and popularity of Joaquin Buckley. I still went out there like a chump, and I still went out there and, and parlayed to get him with uh, Carlos Philippe. Initially, my parlay was going to be Carlos Philippe and Aramazan Amiv. I scared myself off of that Amiv play, um, eventually put in Buckley instead, and uh, yeah, very, very unfortunate loss there. Buckley gets deaded by Alessio Di Carico in that first round. So um, yeah, that really sucked. Nothing went our way that night. Even the Carlos Philippe fight, even though we got our hand raised in that fight, I don't think he deserved the victory there. And uh, yeah, it, it should have been a clean reverse sweep regardless. And that's exactly what it was. We were down minus nine units there. Um, yeah, very demoralizing for sure. But uh, I took a little bit of time off, uh, got right back into the game, and I feel ready to go for UFC Fight Island 8 and got a ton of breakdowns already out. And I'm about to uh, obviously get this podcast out on this Monday for you guys as well. Um, yeah. 
before we get into the breakdowns, I do want to plug the Patreon as always. Probably not the best week to do it, especially after uh, such a demoralizing loss at uh, UFC Fight Island 7. But somehow, some way, we still up on, up uh, end up about two to three more patrons than I did going into Fight Island 7. So I appreciate all the support that everybody's been giving your boy. And I hope to reward you guys over the next two events, especially after that horrible debacle that we had to go through for uh, UFC Fight Island 7. So once again, the Patreon, um, five bucks a month. You get all the picks, uh, which probably you don't want to tell, obviously, after that event. But also you get early access to the breakdowns, the best props and... Um, the best props and bets article as well too which comes out the day before the fights um we have a great discord channel as well too where we have a bunch of people remaining active on there especially giving their community picks on different sports like uh chinese basketball and and uh golf and football and all that other stuff so they're keeping it active there ncaa as well too so shout out to all the guys in the discord and the patreon that are keeping the community picks uh thread alive and then obviously we just talk about the fights and other things as well too so it's a great discord channel and and then lastly, the last thing I'll plug about the Patreon is this week I'm going to be beginning the uh, the, the pay-per-view parlay for the patrons. And what I mean by that is I've, I've decided that we're going to have a four-leg parlay for every pay-per-view coming up. And I'll put down 5% of my monthly take from Patreon on a parlay that's decided upon the patrons. So I'm going to be putting out like a poll slash survey type of thing where people will pick their four best uh, spots that they like on the upcoming pay-per-view and depending on what the results show me on the survey uh, I will pick the four you know popular four, four most popular legs of the parlay put five percent of my patreon monthly take on it and if that parlay hits I will uh, disperse those winnings to one of the patrons uh, just a, a random patron as well too I'll be doing like a live stream to do a draw so everybody can uh, be in the loop but yeah, I just think it's a, a solid way for me to kind of give back to the people that have been supporting me month after month, um, event after event. And I think it's a it's a fun way to keep people engaged. And I truly believe that uh, the patrons really enjoy it. Again, I, I've gotten a very good reception from the patrons uh, who have already helped me in terms of deciding that I should be a four-leg parlay and other things regarding this perk. So uh, yeah, shout out to all the patrons that's helped me out with that. And I hope we get to kick it off with a win at UFC 257 so that I can disperse a little bit of winning. So if you want to hop in on that, again, the link is in this, the description below for the Patreon. Uh, again, huge, huge help in terms of making me uh, allow, allowing me to do this on a full-time basis um damn near close to it super super close i let i set the goal on the patreon as a at the 400 patron mark is when i'm truly going to send in my resignation note to my nine to five and uh, it's all going to be thanks to you guys over on the patreon all right that's about it let's get into the breakdowns for ufc fight island eight and uh yeah good luck victoria leonardo versus manon fiero we got minus 190 on the french woman and uh plus 165 on victoria leonardo let's start off with leonardo who's coming off a big upset victory over chelsea hackett on the contender series and that was a fight where a lot of people thought that chelsea hackett was a shoe in and a great parlay piece she was minus 275 and a lot of people were willing to play the juice on her as i believe a lot of people were looking into the aaron blanchfield loss on victoria leonardo's record if you guys remember from that fight, Aaron Blanchfield, mainly a jiu-jitsu artist, goes out there and shows off great kickboxing. And I emphasize the kick as it, um, in the first round, she lands a beautiful head kick, drops Leonardo, but wasn't able to get the finish. But in the second round, lands the same head kick and uh, absolutely plants Leonardo, uh, Victoria Leonardo on her butt. Um, 
very surprising end to that fight considering Aaron Blanchfield mainly a jiu-jitsu specialist uh, so a lot of people were caught off guard in that I'm assuming Victor Victoria Leonardo too but uh, Leonardo bounces back from that with a decision victory over Liz Tracy a brown belt in jiu-jitsu uh, she went out there and put on a, not a striking clinic per se but uh, mainly a striking based game plan and then she goes out there and springs the upside against Chelsea Hackett in a fight where, you know, she got her lead leg pretty much torn up. But it was on Victoria Leonardo to close the distance, get into the grappling exchanges and try to get this fight to the ground. And that's exactly what she did. In the second round, she was successful in getting the fight to the ground and passing to that full guard position where she was able to rain down shots and showed great balance and a base uh, from that full mount. Uh, Chelsea Hackett was screaming, bucking, doing whatever she could. Unfortunately, she was not able to get out of that position, and we saw Victoria uh, just rain down vicious ground and pound. It was very, very... Uh, it was very aggressive, like I was saying. It was very impactful and definitely did a lot of damage on Chelsea, and eventually we saw the fight get stopped in that second round. Now... Um, it seems as though whenever we watch Victoria Leonardo fight, she she's she's like an all-around type of fighter. She's almost a jack of all trades. Like she's a purple belt in jiu-jitsu, but she shows decent kickboxing as well too. Obviously not to the level of her opponent in this fight, but it seems whenever she goes into a, in a fight, she bases her game plan around whatever her opponent it brings to the table. For example, like the Aaron Blanchfield fight, she tried keeping that fight in the stand-up realm. Unfortunately for her, it did not work out. In the Liz Tracy fights, a fighter who had a brown belt compared to her own purple belt, she tried keeping the fight on the feet and did a good job in terms of maintaining that distance. That was a fight where she had a bit of a height advantage, so she was able to go out there, you know, land the jab with pretty much some consistency, continue to move on the outside, um, really nullify the grappling game or or clinch work of Liz Tracy and did a good job of pretty much outstriking her there's really only two judges that actually gave Liz Tracy that first round and then the rest of the rounds were scored in Victoria Leonardo's favor and then the Chelsea Hackett fight obviously she knows she's going to be outgunned on the feet she goes out there takes the fight to the ground and eventually gets that finish in that second round beautiful beautiful ground and pound her lead leg was absolutely getting chewed up by Chelsea Hackett, who seemed to be spamming the same combination over and over, which was the one-two leg kick. And we saw a couple leg kicks in. It was already doing a ton of damage to Leonardo's legs. So I understand that approach from Chelsea Hackett. Unfortunately, we didn't see much from her off of her back um, in terms of being able to survive. She survived that first round. Obviously, she found herself in a bad situation. But then that second round, I think that jujitsu, the the base of Leonardo's game was really catching up to Chelsea Hackett there and she just could not buck her off of her. Now on the flip side, we got Manon Ferriot, who's, uh, or Fioro, I'm trying to do my best in terms of landing the pronunciation from this French woman, but uh, she was very, very active in 2020. In July, she had her first fight of 2020 and from July to uh, November 27th, she managed to rattle off three fights. All of them she won via finish. And she showed great improvement from a fight-to-fight -fight basis. Now, she has a kickboxing and Muay Thai background, but when she got into the MMA world, she really started to showcase that she was about that life. <laughs> and I want to say that with, uh, with as much meaning as possible because she showed that she was pretty good in the grappling realm, or at least making the improvements that were needed 
to be better in that world. Like uh, her first fight was against a girl named Leah McCourt, who was own one MMA at the time and made it pretty much obvious right off the bat that she wanted to engage in the grappling realm and the clinch realm and try to pretty much just out muscle um, Manon. But Manon did a really good job in terms of sweeping in certain situations, getting back to her feet, doing damage on the feet as well too. Unfortunately, she lost the, the fight via split decision, but a lot of people thought that she deserved that fight given the amount of damage that she was dishing out in that fight. Me being one of them, I thought she definitely won that fight. But I was very, very impressed by what I, from what I saw from her in her fights in terms of the, the grappling realm. Like you would expect a kickboxer who had as much experience as her to mainly just focus on the kickboxing. But there were fights where like the Corinne Laframbois fight, for example. We saw Laframbois just go out there and just um, unleash some haymakers, maybe not the most technical, but she was landing on Manon, and Manon decided to engage in the clinch, engage in the grappling, and really try to put on a complete MMA performance. And then as the later that fight went on, the more Manon's kickboxing came to fruition, the more uh, Laframbois was, uh, you know, kind of fading, and she got her nose absolutely busted up by uh, Manon and uh, and the next couple fights the, the Naomi Tatarugla absolutely butchered that name but uh, in that fight we saw another uh, example of Manon's kickboxing experience in that fight she had a pretty sizable height advantage and reach advantage and we saw right off the bat with her sidekicks beautiful sidekicks uh, especially one that she landed on Laframbois in the fight before she absolutely planted Laframbois on her butt um, but she started off that uh, the Naomi fight with a bunch of those sidekicks to try to maintain that distance and um, even when the fight hit the ground she showed great uh, top control landed a bunch of ground and pound and eventually finished that fight via ground and pound as well too very very impressive and then her last fight against uh, Campo I believe Gabriela Campo is her name um, that girl just did not seem like she deserved to be in that fight either uh, and she finishes the fight out with a bunch of strikes up against the cage um, completely outclassing Campo there now here against Leonardo I feel like it's almost a carbon copy of the last fight that we saw with Leonardo with her fighting uh, a mainly a kickboxer Muay Thai specialist in Chelsea Hackett I think the difference here though is that we're seeing a lot more grappling improvements uh, from um, la, uh, from Manon compared to what we saw from Chelsea Hackett and I think that might be the difference maker here I don't think that we'll see Leonardo as successful in the grappling realm as she was against Chelsea as we'll see Manon kind of uh, active enough to to stay out of bad positions and then once the fight is on the feet it's just going to be absolutely one-way street um she has a two-inch height advantage i don't have the reach metrics on Manon, but i gotta believe that she's going to have a, an advantage there as well too but i think that the head kick that aaron blanchfield landed on leonardo will be very very live here from Manon, who shows a great game she shows great combinations mostly ending them with kicks as well too and I think it's really going to cause Leonardo a bunch of, uh, you know, a bunch of frustration. It's, it's, she's going to be very confused in terms of what's coming her way. And I think eventually in the second round, we'll see Manon land some big shots and eventually ground Leonardo on her en route to a TKL finish. And I think uh, the, the spot here also is the under two and a half. I think there's a bunch of value there at plus 170, as I believe both women are definitely live for a finish here. Like I said, I believe uh, Fioron will have, uh, it won't be as completely out of the, like a fish out of the water as Chelsea Hackett was if she's on her back on the ground. Um, 
but we I could see a, a situation where Leonardo might be a little bit too much, might be a little bit too strong on the ground, and she could get a similar ground and pound finish or even a, a submission of some sort and putting that purple belt jiu-jitsu to use. However, I think it's going to mainly be contested on the feet. I think we see Manon keep this fight on the feet. She might hit the ground, but I think she does a good job of getting back to her feet. Maybe even a, reverse, a reversal thrown in there that might catch Victoria off guard. And I believe that we'll see Fiero, um, you know, do damage in that second round. I think we'll see uh, Leonardo start to maybe not gas, but um, again, be frustrated that she won't get her game going and uh, start to start to suck wind a little bit and then eventually get caught off guard by uh, whether it's a head kick or, or any type of combination that Fiora throws. So uh, I'll go with uh, Manon to win this fight via second round KO, but I think that the under two and a half around that plus 170 mark has a ton of value as I believe both women are very, very live for a finish here. So once again, I'll go with Manon Ferio uh, to win this fight via KO in the second round. Umer Nurmagomedov versus Sergey Morozov. We got minus 400 on Umer and we got plus 400 on Sergey Morozov. Let's start off with Umer Nurmagomedov. I believe he is a cousin of um, Khabib Nurmagomedov and trains with that Eagles camp. Uh, he was one of the fighters under Abdulmanab before he passed away. But obviously all those guys, very tight-knit community. So they're still sticking together and, and getting in some good training. Obviously, I'm assuming that Khabib is kind of heading the, the camp now and, and really guiding these guys in the right direction uh so it's it's going to be interesting to see how everything shakes out if you guys remember these guys were originally supposed to fight at ufc 254 uh the same night as khabib and uh justin gaethje unfortunately uh umer tested positive for covid and he had to stay back uh and and the fight got postponed even Sergey motozov didn't end up fighting either and now they just ended up rescheduling the belt uh, the belt roughly three months after it was originally supposed to happen uh Speaking about Omer, I well another thing that I do want to bring up regard uh, about that UFC two fifty four about I had actually uh, recorded a breakdown if you guys remember that was my big UFC one or sorry my MMA lockcast episode one hundred where I had a different handicapper on or a different MMA personality on for every single matchup and for that one I had my guy Big Marcel. You guys know him as the guy who pretty much breaks all the big news or even just keeps us up to date regarding all the fight cancellations and fight announcements and all, the, all that type of stuff. He's quite familiar with a lot of those guys on that side of the pond. So it was great getting his input on it as well. Um, but he did agree with me in terms of this fight being uh, an Umer Nurmagomedov fight. So in terms of the skill set and how these guys match up with each other, uh, just because Umer has Nurmagomedov as his last name doesn't entirely mean that he has that ground and pound, ground and pound wrestling style of a Khabib. Uh, you know, he has great takedowns, he has good damage from on top, but most of his work is done in in that in that open cage area where he's able to like utilize his kicks. He has a much more fluid stand up game than a Khabib because. You know, Habib, you know, kind of just rushes forward, uh, tries to make you uncomfortable, gets, it creates a little bit of chaos so that it's easier to take you down. Whereas Umer likes to throw a little bit more strikes, set up his takedowns a little bit more. Uh, and he's been on a bit of a run now, too. He's 12 and 0 coming into the UFC. Uh, and honestly, I was hoping that we'd see him fight against somebody that's already been established within the UFC. He was originally scheduled to fight Hunter Azure back in July of last year. Then he was scheduled to fight Nathaniel Wood. Uh, and now here he is against another UFC newcomer and Sergey Morozov. So I, I like what I'm seeing from Umero. He spent some time uh, in the PFL and then he had a couple fights in GFC as well, which is the, the Gorilla Fight Club, I believe it is. Uh, now I believe it's called the Eagles Fight Club. Um, 
and uh, yeah, that's that. That was a company that was very closely associated to the Nurmagomedov camp and that Dagestan region. So they got a lot of good matchups for themselves. They're not saying that he's fighting scrubs out there. Like the last guy he fought was six and zero. Before that, uh, in the PFL, he fought a guy who was thirteen and six. Even in the GFC fight before that, sixteen and seven. So he's going up against guys that have legitimate uh, competition under their belts, uh, good experience under their belts, and they could absolutely push Umer as well too. Now we've seen more decisions than we've seen finishes from uh, from Omer, but uh, out of his uh, three, out of his last three fights, he did get a rear naked choke in both of those fights. Um, he shows good skills on the ground. Uh, I do like what we see from him on the feet too, uh, specifically with his kicks. It's probably one of the more diverse kicking games that we've seen from somebody who comes from that region. Now on the Sergey Morozov side, we're talking about a guy who's already had a couple losses under his belts, but he's actually fought some very, very good competition. Uh, his second last loss was to a guy named Josh Reddinghouse, who he actually ended up avenging that loss to last time out. Uh, that was in uh, October of 2019. So it's been over a year and just a bit uh, since he actually last stepped into the cage. His last loss... Mozarevluev. Most guys already know him as a as a guy who's already in the UFC, who has a couple wins under his belt too, and is definitely one of the higher highly touted prospects within the UFC itself too. And that was a very competitive fight up into that finish, and it was more so a a finish where it was like a, a Michael Chiesa and and uh, Kevin Lee situation where we didn't really get a tap from Sergey Morozov, but uh, it, it seemed pretty deep. Uh, he didn't protest it too much afterwards. He did say, I didn't tap, uh, but it wasn't, you know, Michael Chiesa style kind of losing it on the ref or anything. Um, but yeah, that, that was a quite competitive fight there. He got Evloev down a couple times, uh, landed some good damage from on top, but unfortunately for him, uh, Evloev was too much for him that night and he got that finished in the third round. But since then, he's put together five straight victories uh, over decent opponents, um, and and unfortunately for him, he is coming into the UFC against another highly talented prospect who probably hasn't beat in almost every aspect. If I had to give him an advantage in any aspect of this fight, it would be the hands, strictly the boxing. I think he does have a better technical boxing game than Omer, but this is MMA, so it's only going to take him so far. I think that the kicking game will be able to nullify that from the Omer side and then eventually translating that into takedowns uh, and kind of just grinding out a decision victory here. So uh, I do like Omer to win this fight. I think he's uh, a little bit more um, polished. Um, you know, Sergey has 19 MMA fights compared to the 12 fights from Umer. But uh, in terms of the quality of opponents, both guys, uh, you know, are, are fighting very, very tough competition. That's one thing that you can say about these Russian regional leagues compared to the American regional leagues. Like sometimes these guys get a little bit too much grooming on on the American side and the regional, uh, and then on the Russian side and and on the European side, these guys are fighting just straight killers. Uh, you know, rising up throughout the ranks, and then you truly get to see the guys that rise above. And those guys actually end up making it to the UFC or Bellator or, you know, one showcasing a lot of these top talents uh, from that region of the world. But unfortunately, from uh, from uh, Morozov's size, this is a very, very tough fight to come into the UFC with. Um, you know, a, a Kazakh representative, another guy from his gym that recently made his UFC debut, actually made his debut on that UFC 254 card that he was supposed to fight at as well, uh, was Shavkat Rachmanov, uh, who got a, a quick victory over Alex Cowboy Oliveira. So maybe he's able to parlay that confidence into this fight against Umer, pull off an upset himself too. 
but this is a much more monumental task to complete than what Shavka had to deal with that night at UFC 254. So I, I still think the odds are a little bit wide. I'm not going, willing to go out there and shell out that minus 500 on a UFC debutante, even though he's going up against another new UFC newcomer as well too. I like what we see from Umer, but I want to see a little bit more. I want to see how he truly fares inside the UFC cage. Uh, and again, no matter what happens against Sergey, I want to see him against other UFC guys who are already been in the UFC who are already battle-tested, who are already proven that they deserve to be at the UFC level too. So uh, with Umer, uh, I'm hoping to see him pull off victories against those types of guys uh, within the UFC and and legitimize his longevity within the UFC. So uh, I'll go with Umer to win this fight via decision, uh, but the line is just a little bit too much. And unfortunately for the Sergey side, I don't see much of a reason to be risking that plus 400 here. So I'll go with Umer, uh, anything, and I think he wins this fight via decision. Mike Davis versus Mason Jones. We got minus 160 on the Beast Boy and plus 140 on the Dragon Mason Jones. Let's start off on the Mike Davis side of things, who's coming off a brutal victory over Thomas Gifford way back in October of 2019. In a fight where you could arguably say that fight could have been stopped much, much earlier. Um, the referee just let it go on. Thomas Gifford took way too much unnecessary damage. Uh, that was his last fight in the UFC. After that, he goes out there and gets knocked out by a nobody in 33 seconds. So he definitely was showing the wear and tear. Uh, and, and the amount of damage that he took in that fight against Mike was just just insane. The the speed advantage that Mike had, um, his ability to close the distance, the lack of respect for the striking coming his way from Gifford, who just... You know, when it, whatever he was throwing, it seemed like it had zero impact on Mike Davis's uh, impression and and his demeanor in terms of just moving forward and kind of just letting his hands go. Um, then before that, he actually had his uh, UFC debut against Gilbert Burns, a very tough fight to come to to come into the UFC. Um, you know, short notice. Um, uh, you know, loses that fight via rear naked choke, but he showed decent hands in that fight. He showed decent uh, submission defense as well until, unfortunately, Gilbert Burns was able to get his back in that second round and then sink in that rear naked choke, just completely outmatched on the ground. You can't really blame him for that too, right? Again, coming in on short notice, not the not the, not the, the easiest path to, uh, path to victory against a guy like Gilbert Burns, who is fighting for a title in the next month or two as well. So you got to give him uh, some props there. Uh, the first time we were truly introduced to Mike Davis, though, on uh, at least the UFC scene was the Contender Series uh, when he took on Sadiq Youssef as a pretty heavy favorite going into that fight. Not a lot of people were aware of what Sadiq Youssef was, was capable of, you know, um, Mike Davis came into that fight as a 5-0 and fighter. Sadiq Yusuf came in as a 6-1 and fighter. And uh, a lot of people thought that it was going to be easy pickings for Mike Davis. Sadiq Yusuf had completely other plans here. Uh, lands a bunch of bombs on Mike Davis early. Drops him a couple times. Almost finishes him too. Uh, and then it was able to secure a decision victory given the, um, the, the durability of Mike Davis in that fight. Um, so obviously Mike Davis... Doesn't end up getting a contract that night on the contender series. Goes out there, wins two fights uh, in uh, in island fights. Uh, the, you know, finishes Elvin Leon Brito in the third round, and then he gets a Kimura victory in the first round against Carlos Guerra, and then he steps in our short Norris against uh, Gilbert Burns. Now it's unfortunate that we haven't seen him compete as much as I'd like to. You know what I mean? I think he's a very talented fighter, has crisp hands, has a solid wrestling background as too in case he needs to lean on that. Uh, but his hand speed, his kicks, um, his question mark kick that he throws out there is very impressive too. I think he covers distance quite well as well. Um, I think the speed is going to be the main factor here in terms of why he should be able to beat a guy like Mason Jones. Um, 
in terms of Mike Davis being active, like I was saying, he was scheduled to fight Giga Chikadze in February of 2020. Uh, he had to pull out due to a non-disclosed uh, injury. Then he was scheduled again to fight him in May. Uh, and then he had uh, complications with his weight cut. So he was forced to pull out of that fight as well. Now here he is roughly uh, a year and three months after he last fought against Thomas Gifford. And I think he's in incredible shape. If you follow along with him on the IG and other things that he that he keeps up with, you see that he's putting time in a, at ATT, a very good training camp that he has surrounding him there. And I feel like this is a, a tailor-made matchup for him against Mason Jones. Now let's go on to the Mason Jones side of things, who's undefeated coming into this fight 10-0. He's coming in as the champ champ as well from the Cage Warrior scene. He never fought at welterweight before until his last fight where he took on Adam Proctor, who was 12-1. You could see the obvious side size difference there. Proctor had a little bit of success in landing some good shots, unfortunately for him. Uh, Mason Jones was just hella durable, came back and eventually got the finish himself late in that uh, first round. So he ends up become, becoming the welterweight champion. Before that, he did Won the he won the the lightweight title i believe it was the fight before no sorry he won the lightweight title yeah against joe mcclaughlin uh that was in march of this year and then he beat adam proctor in september so about four months later he's coming in, or three months later he's coming into the ufc to fight a guy like mike davis who is in my opinion a little bit too out of his league and you kind of question that because going into this, I'm like, okay, let me study Mason Jones first. And I go through the tape and I'm quite impressed with what I see. You know, he has decent hands, uh, uses leg kicks quite well, um, has a great spinning back kick as well that he throws to the body. Uh, and then he has a black belt in judo as well as a brown belt in jujitsu. And I feel like, um, you know, again, finishing the Mason Jones side of it, I'm like, this guy could be actually be worth a bet here. I, I think he's pretty live here. And then you throw on the Mike Davis tape and you're like, oh shit, this is why Mike Davis is the favorite and this is why you probably shouldn't be betting Mason Jones. Mike Davis is just a completely other level than what Mason Jones has faced in the cage warrior scene. You know, I think that Mike Davis's speed, like I said earlier, is going to be the X factor here as he's going to have much quicker hands, much quick, quicker kicks too. And I feel like his wrestling background will allow... Um, him to kind of keep this fight on the feet or even drag it to the ground if that's what he wants to do um if he wants to test that brown belt of mason jones uh we we did see a couple of good kimura attempts from uh mason jones against uh well I, I, i'm gonna butcher this guy's name but alexei way back at cage warriors 108 unfortunately wasn't able to complete a kimura there um but i think uh, again mike davis should be able to he has all the tools to pretty much keep this fight in the place that he wants now the only thing that i would concern me is if we see mason jones go out there and uh attack um from a, a calf kicking standpoint we've seen it in the past from him and we've seen it you know super detrimental to mike davis in the past as well notably sodik yusuf and gilbert burns who used it to you know the best extent possible to really render mike davis kind of uh immobile and uh, they were able to get their games going from that i'm not sure if that's what we'll truly see from mason i think if he tries to go that way he might get it get countered here uh you know again the, the speed advantage of mike davis will be a little bit too much for mason and i feel as though um you know when he wants to get the fight to the ground he can do that but i feel as though mike davis will keep this on the feet and I, I think he could knock out uh, Mason Jones here. I think Mason Jones is, is hella durable, but he hasn't fought anybody to the level of Mike Davis. And we've seen Mason Jones hurt a couple of times. Adam Proctor was successful in doing so. I think Mike Davis will be successful in doing so as well. And uh, I, I think that's where the the, the difference is going to be. The the speed, the, the level of competition that Mike Davis has faced. Um, 
you know, his 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 striking is just so beautiful. It, like seeing a guy like Sadiq Yusuf do what he did to Mike Davis just truly shows you how good Sadiq Yusuf is. Uh, and I think that Sadiq Yusuf would absolutely decapitate Mason Jones as well too. So um, it's, it's weird because you get these guys from Cage Warriors coming over as champ champs or coming over with this huge hype, especially on an undefeated streak. But then they run into a guy like Mike Davis who's probably on the cusp of the top 15 if he stays active enough or if maybe in that top 20 to top 25 range and then he should go out there and absolutely smoke this kind of guy so i feel like mason jones could be successful in the ufc with a little bit more um experience getting his feet wet a little bit more especially against guys that aren't just from that european scene um i truly think that these guys need to get a little bit more experience like even if they go over to the russian scene i feel like the russian scene like i've said in past breakdowns probably the one of the toughest regional scenes that you can go against like they're not just putting you up against other russians but they bring people from all over the world that uh, make it really difficult for some of these uh prospects to kind of make their way through the the lower ranks and then eventually get to the ufc i feel as though like the canadian scene is probably one of the easiest to get through to get to the ufc then i've got to say it's the the european scene specifically the cage warrior scene and then obviously russia is probably the hardest to to get through their regional scene to make it to the big show so uh, once again, I, like I said, I like Mike Davis here. As long as we don't see like a, a calf kicking heavy game from Mason Jones, even if he does go about that, I feel as though we'll see Mike Davis ready for that, ready to counter, make Mason Jones pay for whatever he throws. Um, but yeah, the, the faster, cleaner striker Mike Davis is going to make it a rough, rough night for Mason Jones. So I could absolutely see a finish as well too. I'll go with uh, Mike Davis probably by first or second round KO. I'll go with the second round KO just to be on the safe side. Um but yeah, it's going to be a rough night for Mason Jones, at least from what I what I believe and what I've been able to gather. So once again, I'll go with Mike Davis to win this fight via second round KO. Jerome Rivera versus Francisco Figueiredo. And we got minus 150 on Figueiredo and plus 130 on Jerome Rivera. But let's start off with Francisco Figueiredo. Obviously, that name sounds very, very familiar. It is the brother of Davis and Figueiredo, who's finally making his uh, debut in the UFC. He comes in with an 11-3-1 record. That one being a draw, which was actually in his last fight. And it's not often that you see a fighter coming off a draw on the regional scene, making their debut in the UFC. Now, obviously... It has to do with the the link that he has with Davison Figueiredo. Um, and they kind of have a similar style to the extent of, I think that Davison hits a little bit harder, is a little bit faster. Um, and uh, yeah, just shows a lot better of a game in my opinion. So let's start off with Francisco. The only fight that we really have tape on him, or at least that I was able to access, was this fight against Edson. I believe his name is Edson. Uh, Souza, which was actually his last fight, which was the draw, sorry, Eduardo Souza, I should say, uh, that was a draw simply due to the fact that uh, Francisco Figueiredo uh, did get a point docked for a very illegal and blatant uh, fence grab, especially when Souza was trying to take this fight to the ground. So the referee did not hesitate at all, stopped the fight, took the point pretty much immediately, and then they got back to the action. But he still went out there and decisively won two rounds. Uh, we did see Souza go out there in the, in the first pretty much 30 seconds of the fight, get Figueiredo down, and that's a little bit of a concern, especially going up against a jiu-jitsu guy like Jerome Rivera. Um, but like I said, there's not much tape out there on Francisco, so it's a little bit harder to truly get a read on what his cardio is like, what his uh, true game is like, his striking, and how he truly does off the ground. As once he did get taken down, it didn't take him too too long to find his way back to his feet. 
Now he pretty much won that fight in the striking realm where he landed the much more damaging blows. But I was uh, I was hoping that we'd see a little bit more combination work from him. But he seemed like a one and doneer. Uh, obviously, a couple combinations reined in here and there. But he was a guy that was just landing good shots on his opponent um, and and getting out of the way of the big ones coming his way. So. Um, this was a rematch as well too he had actually lost to this guy Eduardo Souza about three years prior or two years prior I should say um, where he lost a split decision obviously I don't have access to that tape so I wasn't able to see how it should have gone or whether he deserved the victory or not uh, but we do know that he ended up somewhat getting revenge in the rematch even though it went to a draw that obviously means that if that point hadn't gotten taken away he probably would have won that fight however if he didn't grab the cage and Souza did get him to the ground who knows how that fight would have ended up uh, in terms of his other two losses he lost to uh, Luis Nogueira and um, and John Lineker who is obviously a name that everybody knows that John Lineker fight was way back in 2011 um, and in terms of his losses uh, they came via one decision one knockout on one uh, decision so I'm assuming, uh, sorry, one decision, one submission, and one knockout. I'm assuming that knockout loss came to John Lineker as his decision loss came to Eduardo Souza. And then obviously his submission loss came to Luis Nogueira. But uh, yeah, I, I need a little bit more to truly get a read on him. And I feel like uh, this fight with Francisco, or sorry, with Jerome Rivera could definitely be pushed a little bit further, maybe to the 15-minute mark. And we can see a little bit more of uh and uh davison not davison goddamn i obviously i want to say davison but we'll see a little bit more of figurado's game here now let's flip over flip over to the jerome rivera side where we're getting a guy who's coming off a knockout loss to tyson nam in the second round last time around which was in september um of this year and uh, that was a fight where he was doing pretty well in that first round now if you go back and look at the judges scorecards we did see every single judge gave him that first round he was very active uh, a very active kicking game a lot of output a lot of movement unfortunately for him in the second round he was a little bit lackadaisical with his inside leg kick and he paid for it with the counter from Tyson M who obviously has a ton of power and was able to flatline uh, Jerome Rivera in that fight and finish well, uh, with a bunch of ground and pound um, but I did like what we saw in that first round from him obviously he had a contender series fight as well too where it went to a, a close decision a lot of people thought it was it should have gone the other way around I thought it was a close fight he showed great Muay Thai he showed a great uh, sense of uh, keeping distance um, th there was a weird exchange in that second round where they're kind of stuck in like a submission type position but the other opponent was the one landing the bigger strikes uh, so th that was intriguing as well too and one thing that I also want to note of is uh so he was nine and two or sorry ten and two coming into the ufc his two prior losses were to fighters that were both in the ufc uh roberto sanchez and brandon royval the brandon royval fight that was a fight where he suffered a very gruesome arm injury 40 seconds into the fight and he was actually a minus 260 favorite going into that fight so given how Brandon Royval has looked as of late, obviously he lost via dislocated shoulder to Brandon Moreno not too long ago, but he was on the verge of getting a title shot within a couple months of making his debut in the UFC. Now I think that uh, just the fanfare and, and the odds makers and a lot of the MMA fans we're kind of discrediting the the game of Brandon Royval. Like he's not really a much of a technical fighter, but the chaos that he brings to a fight really allows uh you know the the fight to be skewed closer than the odds actually suggest. So um, I, I don't look too far into that, but it is something cool to note the fact that he was close to a three to one favorite over a guy that's very close to title contention in the flyweight division of the UFC. So I. 
I like what we see from Jerome Rivera. Um, he's very active. He has a good jiu-jitsu game as well, too. And I feel like uh, he'll have a bit of a... Well, he, he won't. He definitely will have a, uh, a bit of a height advantage here. He's 5'10", uh, sorry, 5'11", compared to Figueiredo, who's, I believe, 5'7". Uh, sorry, 5'6". So he'll have a bit of a, a height advantage on him here, too. You know, I actually do want to crack myself in terms of the heights there because i did record this the only thing i don't have access to actually is the reach of francisco uh so in terms of yes yeah, so we got 5 10 72 inch reach for jerome rivera and then 5 6 for francisco so jerome obviously um a uh a fighter with well, with the height advantage here and i do believe yeah this fight is a featherweight fight i'm not sure why sorry it's a bantamweight fight um but yeah, I, I like Jerome Rivera here. I feel like he might have the activity edge here. Um, I don't think that Francisco has the one-punch knockout power that his brother Davison does. Um, and uh, yeah, this is a tough fight for Francisco to make his debut against because I feel like Jerome will be able to overwhelm him with that with that output and that volume and that movement. And then obviously being able to close that distance and land big shots is going to be a little bit more difficult. I feel like Jerome has also learned lessons from his last fight against Tyson Am in terms of being a little bit more defensively sound when he's throwing his shots out there. Now he can he can lay back on the defensive once he's a little bit more comfortable within the round. Obviously the uh, the knockout against Tyson Nam came pretty quickly in that second round, and that was more so Tyson Nam just knowing okay this problem this guy's probably going to throw a kick, throw a naked kick as well too. And as soon as I counter, uh, it should probably land on the chin. Now if we saw Francisco maybe set it up with a couple or sorry if we saw Jerome set it up with a couple punches and then end off with a leg kick, he probably would have been a little bit safer. And I think that's definitely a lesson that he's got to learn here. So uh, I feel like we could see possibly a takedown game as well from Jerome to get his jiu-jitsu going too. And I just feel like um, what we've seen thus far from Francisco leads me to believe that Jerome should have a bit of an advantage here. However, limited tape, um, and I'm, that, that alone scares me off of uh, uh, truly betting Jerome Rivera here. I will pick Jerome to win. Uh, I do think he gets it done via decision. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some wrinkles from Figueredo's game that we haven't been able to uncover simply due to the lack of tape and footage out there on him, at least accessible from my end. So uh, I'll go with Jerome Rivera to win this fight via decision. Um, and yeah, uh, unfortunate debut for Davison's brother, but he could absolutely go out there and prove me wrong. But uh, given the evidence and, and facts and proof that I have in front of me, I got to go with Jerome. Marcus Perez versus Dalcha Lungiambula. We got minus 135 on Dalcha and plus 115 on Marcus Perez. Let's start off with Marcus Perez, who's coming off a knockout loss to Drakus Duplessis. Uh, that was, I believe that was in October, yeah, October 10th, uh, he took a loss there, and that was two straight losses in a row for him now, before that he lost a decision to Wellington Terman, uh, but in that fight against Drikas Duplessis, he came out and showcased a little bit more than I was uh, kind of expecting him from him uh, compared to before. Now, if you guys remember my breakdown that I did for that fight, I had said that Marcus Perez sometimes... Uh, plays to or fights to entertain more than he does to actually win and more often than not that is a bit of a detriment to his style given his you know uh, spinning stuff flying stuff whatever it is um but he does he seems a little bit lackadaisical in terms of winning rounds he's more so out there to just again be an entertaining fighter 
but he came out there and the drink is two pluses fight and he came out with uh with uh with with a message like with a meaning he you know ripped body kicks to to drink is two pluses uh had a good co- couple combinations was pushing the pressure for the most part of that fight and then we see drink is absolutely just turn it on halfway through that round and then eventually land a beautiful left hook while marcus was spinning once again like i was saying about his entertaining style um he lands a beautiful left hook drops uh marcus and then follows up with some ground and pound to get the finish there and that was uh you know that that was very discouraging especially if you're a marcus perez fan i feel like he's um you know he he could be successful in the ufc he has all the tools in my opinion Uh, he's a decent fighter he has a good ground game as well too however um it just seems like he just he just has a momentary lapse of judgment at times and it definitely cost him especially against Drickus two pluses now i feel like he was supposed to get cut after that fight uh luckily for him he's still hanging around but unfortunately for him he's going up against a heavy puncher in dolce lungiambula now let's start off with the or let's head on over to the dolce side uh former efc champion over there in south africa then came over to the ufc made his de- debut against the quant townsend and was able to sleep him in that third round uh and then uh, gets finished in the third round as well by Magomed Ankalaev the next time around that was November of 2019 and now he was scheduled to fight Carl Robeson uh, a couple times uh, in 2020 Uh, that fight ultimately doesn't end up happening I believe one of them is because Carl Robeson tests positive for COVID Uh, yeah Robeson tests positive for COVID for December 12th and then um, another one for December 19th so now he's drawing Marcus uh, Perez uh, you know a year and maybe two or three months afterwards uh since his last fight um when i was running the tape he uh f- from the surface it looks like he's a guy that just relies on his power um but i feel like i kind of overstated the amount of power that he truly brings to the game um obviously physically he's a very intimidating specimen to to look at especially if you're facing him across the cage uh but um I- i'm concerned that we might be overblowing his knockout power with that said, though, when you have a guy like Marcos Perez, who's coming off a three, roughly a three-month layoff, um, especially after getting knocked out the way that he did, it leaves a little bit of room con- for concern. Now, we've seen instances where Dolce is not able to get the finish, so he goes out there and, and leans on his grappling and his takedowns. However, he's not the most devastating of a ground-and-pound striker uh, when it comes to the, the ground game. I feel like Dolce kind of uses the ground game to to win rounds or win minutes and just kind of control guys rather than just, you know, posturing up and landing big shots from there. Most of his finishes have come from his hands. Um, and that, again, that is the concern here with Marcus Perez. Now, if Perez was coming off a decision loss to Drickus took pluses or something like that, I'd be a little bit more keen to be betting the Marcus Perez side, especially at plus money. I feel as though he has a little bit more of a complete game than Dalja. However, um, his chin issues do worry me a little bit, especially going up against a heavy puncher here like Dalja. Again, I don't want to overblow the amount of power that Dalja actually brings to the table, but uh, if you're fighting a fighter that's already compromised, you don't really want to be backing that guy against a guy who's a, a heavy and explosive fighter like Dalja. Now, Dalja got a lot of success over there in EFC. I feel like he almost got away with um, uh, a, a gift of a victory in one of his decisions. I'm trying to remember which one it was. I believe it was the Andrew Van Ziel fight. That's a fight that won complete five rounds, but uh, could have gone either way easily. Um, the Stuart Austin fight, very sketchy too. He gets dropped in that first round. 
maybe any other referee out there probably would have stopped that fight. Luckily for him, he survives, gets into the second round, and then unloads on Stuart Austin and gets a pretty quick finish. So I thought it was a little bit contradictory in terms of letting Dalcha kind of survive and then going out there and uh, you know stopping the fight as quickly as he did against Stuart Austin uh, in that second round. So... I feel like Dolce is a little bit limited in terms of the repertoire and MMA game that he brings to the octagon. And that's where Marcus might have him beat. And I feel like I am going to be leaning on the Marcus side here um, to, to win this fight via decision. I just feel like he has more tools. He'll have a little bit of a range advantage here too. Um, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, this fight is actually, yeah, it's a light heavyweight fight. Marcus Perez last time around uh, got knocked out uh, at middleweight by Duplessis. Ooh, this is a tough fight to to truly call. I, I'm gonna go with Marcus. I'll go with Marcus to win this fight via decision. I think a good spot here is off also the over one and a half. Uh, again, the 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 compromised chin of Marcus is a little bit uh, concerning. However, he doesn't have as much weight to cut, especially fighting at 205 pounds here, coming in on relatively short notice. Um, yeah, I think he should win this fight. Do I want to bet him at plus 115? Probably not. If I was getting closer to plus 150, plus 175, I'd be a little bit more intrigued. However, uh, again, the the seemingly compromised chin is a little bit of an issue here for me. But uh, I do think that he has overall better game. His kicks are going to make it very hard for Dolce to close the distance and get his game going. Uh, so I'll go with Marcus. Um, not the most confident, but a decent underdog play here. So once again, I'll go with Marcus Perez to win this fight via decision. Sumadarji versus Zaruk Adashev. We got minus 450 on the Chinese Sumadarji and plus uh, 360 on Zaruk Adashev. Let's start off with Zaruk Adashev, who's coming off a very brutal knockout loss to Tyson Nam in his UFC debut. And he actually took that fight on short notice. Uh, a up a weight class and also missed weight by two and a half pounds so uh definitely the short notice nature of that i think uh made it a little bit more difficult for him to pull off the victory in that fight and then obviously you know that counter from tyson am was just an absolute bomb just absolutely flatlines rook and then he even followed up with another shot on the ground that was completely unnecessary but that was more on the ref, and you can't really blame Tyson Nam for for doing that, especially a Tyson Nam that was, you know, on the chopping block, um, hadn't uh, acquired a UFC victory at the time, and finally was able to get the, his his hand raised that night. So I can't blame Tyson Nam for that uh, extra shot. But either way, uh, Zuruk Adashev, a 16-3 kickboxing record, but he has a 3-2 MMA record. Now, he had a fight in the in Bellator. Uh, that fight went his way. Um uh, he only lost his first ever fight via rear naked choke and then he obviously just got knocked out by Tyson M which brings his record to three and two but when you go through his uh, Bellator fights you see um, you know him trying to get his rounds and him trying to get a little bit more of an MMA uh, approach and experience you know by taking guys to the ground and and you know even trying to get some jiu-jitsu going by like circling for their backs and, and really trying to uh, gather more experience and get his feet wet rather than just going out and kickboxing these guys which is what he already has a background in uh you know unfortunately in the tyson am fight we don't really get to see much of it and obviously it doesn't help that he was up a weight class as well too now here he is finally at his proper weight class uh we should see him coming in better shape and we should see a little bit more of his game too my my concern is um you know the knockout that he suffered to um to tyson am was in june so we have about 
what is it, six, seven months off now. He was scheduled to fight Jeffrey Molina this uh, on this event, but Jeffrey Molina pulls out. I think that's enough time for him to recover, but so that was a very, very bad knockout. And now you're going up against another guy in Sumadarji who does hit like a Mack truck. Um, Sumadarji, 10, or, or I believe 11 of his victories have come via KO, and he has 13 victories total. Um, Sumadarji is a guy that I didn't really have high hopes for coming into the UFC when he originally went out there to fight uh, Louis Smoka. Uh, and we saw Smoka, you know, pretty much for his life try to drag this fight to the ground and that was where he was able to be successful and eventually got the submission victory there but now that you see Sumadarji going out there and fighting other strikers and fighting guys even Malcolm Gordon who is primarily a grappler he did a really good job of maintaining his distance and getting his strikes off and you know you, you got to put a little bit of an asterisk on that fight as well too because Malcolm Gordon just doesn't seem to eat a shot very well so maybe that the writing was already on the wall in that fight uh, and it was obviously uh, you know it, it was obvious as day that the bookmakers had uh, Sumadarji as a minus 380 favorite going into that fight too so obviously the, that was pretty much how that fight was going to go so shout out to anybody that took that Sumadarji round one or even Sumadarji inside the distance or even the under one and a half because that shit hit pretty much immediately I think it was a 38 second fight if I'm not mistaken um yeah i'm liking what we're seeing from Sue. he does a really good job of maintaining distance using his footwork cutting angles uh, a lot of misdirection as well too like even when uh there were uh times against andre sukumtat where it, uh sukumtat was the one kind of pushing forward and we saw sumadarji kind of with his back against the cage and trying to figure out which way to go but he was doing a good job of fainting either way and then pulling off to the side after throwing a couple of strikes but in terms of like being backed up he does a good job for the majority of the time in terms of cutting angles uh, landing a couple shots from distance and i think that's where it's going to be interesting here against zarugatachev where he has a three inch height advantage as well as a seven inch reach advantage and i think it's going to be very difficult for adashev to kind of close that distance and get his game going now his his striking game is primarily centered around leg kicks and that's what we saw him get knocked out against unfortunately with uh by tyson am tyson just uh, you know, launched a, a beautiful counter after getting hit with the leg kick and just absolutely deaded Zaruk uh, I feel like he's going to have to lean on his kicking game here to kind of shorten the distance between him and uh, Sumadarji. Uh, unfortunately, I think he's going to be eating a lot of counters on the way in. So he's going to have to really be defensively sound whenever he's throwing his leg kicks. If he is successful with landing leg kicks, especially to the calf, which is going to be an easy target for him, for him here, um, he could make again. He can make things very very interesting if he is successful in doing so. I just don't see it happening though. I think that once Sue starts to feel a couple of the leg kicks, he is going to start checking them. I think he'll just check them right off the bat, as I, I believe if his coaches are not warning him of the kicking game of Zurukarachev, they're doing a huge disservice to him. Um, but on a fight-to-fight basis, we're seeing massive improvements from Sumadarji, who actually came into the UFC off of a loss, which is not doesn't happen often. And then he obviously incurs that other loss against Luis Smoka, but now he's going up there against guys that are primarily strikers. And I understand why he's a minus 450 favorite here, because he should be able to kind of dance circles around Zuruk Adeshev, use that distance and maintain the distance the way that he does to get off the majority of his shots. Um I'm a little concerned, though. I feel like there might be a lot of recency bias in going into Zeruk Adeshev getting knocked out as quickly as he did from Tyson Nam, and a lot of people might just hop on Sumadarji to win by KO right off the bat. But this could play out as a 
15 minute fight with uh, Sumadarji kind of just picking him apart from outside. So I'm not so keen on betting the inside the distance here. I, I do obviously have question marks about Zarouk's chin, but Tyson Nam, as we've seen in the past, has absolute dynamite in his hands. And I believe he's the harder puncher than Sumadarji here. Now, Madarji has, like I said, about 10 or 11 victories via KO out of his 13 total victories. But, uh, you know, the, the Malcolm Gordon fight, can't really take too much from that considering that Malcolm Gordon, um, you know, doesn't like to be hit. He took Andre Sukumtat all the way to a decision. He did land some big shots there, did rock him a couple times as well. Uh, but even his prior fights to the UFC, like, he's going up against the guys that probably didn't really even deserve to be in there and Zarouk might absolutely be one of those guys too you're talking about a guy who only has four five professional MMA fights and he's only three and two a loss here puts him at 500 and that's not the type of guys you want to be having in the UFC so again I'm, I'm having a difficult time reading whether Sumu should be able to win this fight by KO I will take him to win by KO I'll say either round one or round two um maybe off of a counter of one of those leg kicks of Zeruk, but you got to believe that Zeruk is going to be doing everything in his training camp possible to make sure that his hands stay up after he throws his kicks. Historically, that's not how he kicks. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if you can really take that bad habit out of a fighter, especially if they've been boxing and kickboxing for as long as they have. Um, you know, he's 28 years old. Again, he has 19 kickboxing fights. Um, and now five MMA fights. I'll, again, I'll still go with Sue. Uh, I truly believe he's just getting better on a fight-to-fight basis, and I love his his composure from the from from uh, fighting from distance. Like he's not rushing anything. He moves so well, so slick. Um, yeah, until he fights a, a good grappler that can actually abs- actually get the fight to the ground, kind of like a, a Louis Smoka, I think he's going to be in trouble. But up until that point, if they're just going to continue to feed him guys that he can you know, pick apart on the feet and possibly knock out, he's going to continue to look like a minus 450 favorite. So I like Sue here. Again, having trouble to de- deciphering the, the method of victory here. I don't think it's an automatic you know, foregone conclusion that he knocks out Zaruk here. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I will take the KO. I don't know whether round two or round one. I'll go with round two. Um, you know what? Fuck it. Let's go round one. I'll go round one, Sumadarji KO. Uh, but don't be surprised if this doesn't ends up turning out to be a 15-minute kickboxing match with Sumadarji just landing more shots, landing better blows, uh, and kind of just shutting down the kicking game of Zaruk Adashev. So I'll go with Sue, um, continue to see, this, uh, see him uh, grow on a fight-to-fight basis and progress. He, like I said, he's only going to turn 25 on the day of this fight. So he has tons of time to really round out his game and become a much better fighter. So I'll go with Sumadarji, first-round KO. Um, yeah, first-round KO for Sumadarji. Ricky Simone versus Gaten Perello. We got minus 440 on Ricky Simone and plus uh, 350 on Gaetano. Um, let's start off with Gaetano, who's coming off. Uh, he's on one, two and one in his last three fights. Uh, that one loss that he had was boy back in May of 2018, where he got knocked out by a Jozero Jos- boy. Um, that was a fight where, you know, he did get hurt a couple of times in that first round, had some good success in that first round as well, too. But the durability of Boy really seemed to hold up there. And then uh, we saw, you know, the takedown game really work out for Joe Zero, and he was able to get that finish in the second round. Um, and then in the next two fights, he was fighting guys that probably didn't even deserve to be in there with him. And uh, I don't think that Gaetano is a, a 
you know, a, a super talented guy. To be honest, I don't know if he really even deserves to be in the UFC. This is a very, very tough fight for him to come up against, uh, you know, against Ricky Simone in his UFC debut. But um, uh, so, so the fight after his boy knockout loss was against Percy Herrera. Uh, that was a fight where the doctor stopped it due to a very disgusting cut that was, uh, you know, in the hairline of Herrera. Um, you know, the, you, you probably could have seen that fight go on longer in a couple of different uh, regions or a couple of different athletic commissions. They probably would have let it continue. However, they just stopped it pretty quickly there. Um, you know, he did some good work in the clinch. He has some good Muay Thai, shows off some good elbows as well, too. But his takedown defense looks very lacking. He looks a little bit slow on the feet. I think Ricky Simone is absolutely going to have him beat in the speed advantage here. And uh, uh, yeah, even in the Enzo Maria Aiza fight, uh, he that guy just did not want to be in that fight at all. You could see him pretty much flinching at any time that uh, Pirello threw uh, uh, any type of feint or any type of kick out there. He's just a, a sitting duck against the cage and just a, a very poor representation of what Gaetan truly brings to the table because He's going up against a uh, competition that just doesn't even want to be there. Now, in this fight against Ricky Simone, obviously he could be live for a knockout finish or something like that, just as we've seen Ricky Simone finished by Uriah Faber about three fights ago. Um, but I just don't see him being able to land clean enough on Ricky Simone, who should be able to control this fight almost anywhere. Like, he should be able to get his hands on him, uh, e get an easy takedown, maybe even pull off some ground and pound. He could even be live for a submission, to be honest. Um, I, I just don't see in which realm uh, this guy truly beats Ricky Simone. Now it's down to Ricky Simone's uh, durability. So I'm get finished by Uriah Faber. That was very tough to watch, uh, especially against a guy in Uriah Faber who's not really a knockout artist. So that's something that you're going to have to worry about paying the juice here on Ricky Simone. But if you're talking about something that's very low percentage, you still got to go with Ricky Simone here. Even at the minus 440 line, I think he absolutely goes out there and dummies this guy. Um, if he is smart, if I truly believe that Ricky Simone is a fighter with very good fight IQ, he should be able to go there, get this fight to the ground pretty pretty quickly, and then just go to work from there, whether it's ground and pound or submission. I truly think he's very, very live for a, for a finish here. Um, I'd be surprised if this fight goes to a decision. Um, that would be that would mean uh, Ricky Simone would just be playing this fight super, super safe. But uh, I don't believe that this Pirello guy has much of a gas tank. Um, I feel like, again, he's going to be at a very significant uh, speed uh, disadvantage. Um, and, and somebody actually uh, compared Gaetano to um to david taymor and uh it's hard not to see it like these guys are guys that uh are mainly muay thai fighters don't have much of a ground game and have a sketchy gas tank and we know where the career of david taymor went as well too right so um is it david or daniel i feel like it's david daniel is the good one david is a shitty one let me confirm that actually because i feel like i i'm getting that wrong it's been a long time since we've seen the the taymor brothers in there uh david taymor is Okay, I am incorrect. I meant Daniel Tamor. Daniel Tamor is the one uh, who who he reminds me of. Uh, again, not the fastest on the feet. Throws with a little bit of power. Had some good elbows. Has a decent clinch uh, as well to land some good knees in there. But I find it hard for uh, to believe that he'll be able to control a guy like Ricky Simone, who should be much much stronger in those positions. Should be able to get the takedowns and should be able to control pretty much the entire time. Um, uh, another thing here is uh, so Ricky Simone's coming off a split decision victory over Ray Borg, a fight that should have been a unanimous. Like, I don't know how one judge even saw that for Ray Borg, but that was a fight where he imposed his will, imposed his strength, imposed his grappling, and then really let his hands go as well, too, which showed a ton of improvements there. 
Um, it was just an unfortunate fight for Ray Borg. You know, he's made, he's a guy that thrives more so at 125, and we saw the complete strength disadvantage when he went up a, a weight class and, and fought Ricky Simone, who was the much, much bigger fighter and stronger fighter there too. Um, I, I'm expecting the same thing here. Like, so... Ricky Simone is one and two in his last three fights. Obviously, that knockout loss to Uriah Faber. And then the Rob Font fight, we saw Font, you know, use his much crisper technique, um, you know, uh, use his footwork very well too, and was able to pick apart Ricky Simone from the outside. But that's just not the type of game that Gaetano brings to the table. And I think that's gonna, what's going to have him in a ton of trouble here. Uh, I do believe that Ricky Simone absolutely deserves to be one of the biggest favorites on this card. I think the only one bigger than him is probably Umer Nurmagomedov. Um, but this could arguably be even a bigger favorite. Who knows? Probably by fight time, we see him in the minus 500, minus 600 range. But I think he's a solid parlay piece, even at that steep of a price. I just don't believe that Pirello has much to offer here um, outside of a knockout. But I truly don't even see like he's landed some flush shots on some of these guys and they just did not go out or go down and i feel like ricky simone should be able to handle whatever's coming his way and i think that ricky simone like i said his flight iq should be off the charts here as long as he goes in there gets the takedown pretty much right off the bat and then does some work from on top keep the fight as safe as possible you know what i mean there's there's no need to play on the feet if you don't need to play on the feet and everything that i've seen on tape to this point leads me to believe that this guy has no takedown defense and will struggle very, very much against a guy like Ricky Simone, who has a very strong wrestling game, uh, uh, wrestling background and a wrestling game plan that he usually brings into his into his fight. So I got Ricky Simone, but pretty much by however he wants. Um, let's, let's get fancy with it. I'm going to say Ricky Simone by first round ground and pound finish, as I believe that this guy's just not going to be able to get up, not going to be able to sweep. And I don't think he has any type of submission game that is going to be threatening to Ricky Simone here. So once again, I'll go Ricky Simone to win this fight via first round ground and pound. Tom Breeze versus Omari Akhmedov. We got minus 150 on Tom Breeze and plus 130 on the Russian Omari Akhmedov. So let's start off with Akhmedov, who's coming off a loss to uh, Chris Weidman last time around where he lost that fight via decision. But before then, he was putting together a pretty solid streak where he won, what was it, uh, five street fights in a row, uh, actually undefeated in his last six. We have a draw there with Marvin Vittori way back at UFC 219 in uh, 2017 but before that the only time he had suffered a defeat uh, or not only but one of the times he had suffered defeat was Elizio Zaleskito Santos back in 2016. Now uh, we know what Akhmedov's style is you know I mean he likes to uh, move forward Uh, he has a solid uh, you know some decent power in his hands throws a lot of winging hooks a lot of wide winging hooks not really the most technical striker out there Uh, has some decent takedowns as well too and does a decent job of holding top uh, top pressure when his opponents aren't really doing the best in terms of trying to get out of those bad positions um you know it's funny because he kind of reminds me of a guy like you all Romero in the sense that a lot of people always want to shit on his his cardio and his gas tank and saying oh he's always huffing and puffing in that third round and he's always live to get finished in that third round however he's still always winning these decisions he's always going out there and surviving the third rounds or even winning the third rounds in some of his fights and uh, so he's kind of like proving people wrong even though people are assuming these certain things about him like he did lose in the third round uh to Sergio Moraes and Elizio Zaleski dos Santos uh back in 2015 and 2016 respectively however since then he hasn't lost a fight via finish or even finished a fight uh in that amount of time either 
Now, in terms of talking about finishing fights, the last time he did finish a fight was against Brian Ebersole, but that was a little bit of an interesting one because that was an, a knee injury that they eventually stopped at the end of that first round. So if you want to talk about legitimate last finish for Akhmadi, or, 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 God, I'm absolutely butchering his name, Omari Akhmadov, the last time we saw him actually finish a fight and not due to an injury was against Tiago Perpetuo uh, way back at UFC Fight Night 32, which was in November of 2013. So we're talking over seven years ago, or just over seven years ago with a couple months as well too, since we saw him get a finish. Um, with that said, like, like again, he doesn't have the most uh, impact or power when it's when we're we're talking about his ground and pound and, and when he's holding top control over these guys. Uh, but he's still able to go out there and grind these guys out, push them up against the cage, get the takedowns that he needs to and just outposition these guys, which is why he was able to go on that that six-fight unbeaten streak before running into Chris Weidman, which was a very, very close fight itself to, um, you know, a lot of both of those guys kind of relying on the position more than damage in those fights. And Chris Weidman was able to outposition him for the majority of that fight. Now, this is a completely different stylistic matchup that, uh, that Omari has fought in a long time uh, going up against a guy like Tom Breeze you're talking about as somebody who's very very slick on the feet amazing boxing very crisp very technical a big dude too that's something that a lot of people are going to have to worry about here if you are backing Omari Akhmedov we got six foot for Omari with a 73 inch reach whereas Tom Breeze is coming in with a six three uh six foot three um uh, advantage uh, in terms of the height not advantage sorry he is six foot three coming into this with a 73 and a half inch reach but they're definitely going to look a lot uh you know different in terms of different weight classes once they step into the cage as well too now tom breeze is a guy that i've been very high on for a long time but it seems like his issue is that mental game he's not he's not always able to go out there and and do the best that he can because it seems like he mentally collapses and he mentally breaks there was a long lull in the period of time where he wasn't really even going out there and and getting fights just because he just mentally couldn't do it he's always had these anxiety attacks and these these panic attacks and i hope now that he's had you know two straight fights uh you know within the calendar year that hopefully he's been able to to fix that and remedy that and is able to actually make the walk like i believe one of his fights I can't remember exactly which one, but uh, it might have been the Roman Coppola fight. Uh, it might have been even earlier than that, maybe against Ian Heinisch, uh, uh, Carlos Fajera, or even Alessio Di Crico. All of those fights he pulled out of, but one of those, it was literally like the day of that he eventually pulled out of the fight due to uh, you know mental whatever it was. So if he's able to fix that and if he's able to really get that kind of solved, I feel like he could be a really big problem for a lot of guys in the game. You know, his loss to Brandon Allen was a very, very weird one. Um, he, he initiated the grappling. He, he tried getting the fight to the ground with a beautiful trip. However, uh, Brandon Allen did a really good job in terms of changing the momentum of the direction of that takedown uh, and eventually ended up on top of Tom Breeze. You kind of see the, the, the failed look in Tom Breeze's eyes as soon as he ends up on his back. Um, still had a hook in in a weird position given how long and lengthy his body is. However, Brandon Allen was able to do a good job in terms of securing that top position now they eventually kept working on the ground and and got put up against the cage and Tom Breeze was just stuck in this weird position where uh Brendan Allen was just kind of on top of him almost stacking him uh and just raining down shots raining down elbows and uh, Tom Breeze was in a very compromised position that was very very tough to get out of now if he was more so in the open cage maybe he would have been able to get out and and buck and shrimp and explode out of that situation however being up against the cage pinned up the way he was it was very very tough for him to defend against the big ground and pound that was coming from Brendan Allen so that was an unfortunate loss However, he comes back, uh, I believe, 
yeah, it was eight months afterwards. Comes in against uh, a new UFC, a new UFC opponent in KB Buller, where he was able to show off his beautiful, um, uh, you know, striking his 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 bread and butter, his hands, his kicks, and uh, you know, it wasn't the longest fight. It only lasted a minute and forty two seconds. Uh, after he landed a beautiful power jab down the middle, that abs- that landed just beautifully on the button, like. I know a lot of people are going to give my guy KB Buller some shit for dropping the weight that he did, but like, just go back and watch that jab. It was just perfectly uh, executed. Uh, he got the brunt of that strike right on the center of the face, like just right on the nose. Like if you get re- hit really hard on the nose, more guy, more often than not, guys are going to collapse and fall to the ground. And and eventually Tom Breeze just went ape shit with the ground and pound and eventually got the stoppage there. So I'm sure mentally that was probably a very big thing for him to, to get that. And hopefully he's able to parlay that into a, a solid performance here against Omar Yakhmedov because on the feed, I think he absolutely blows off Medov out of the water. Now I, I've heard certain takes out there that they think that uh, uh, you know the, the under two and a half is a solid spot. It did, uh, you know, it, it did intrigue me at first. However, just looking at the way that uh, Omari deals with guys on the ground, it doesn't seem to me that it will be something that will break Tom Breeze. And I think you're going to have to break Tom Breeze to, to finish him. And I think that's what, uh, you know, given the, or, or sorry, adding the the incentive that he was pinned up against the cage against Brandon Allen and the, the tenacity that Brandon Allen was bringing into that cage as well too with that ground and pound. Uh, I think it's going to be tough to, to finish a guy like uh, Tom Breeze um, especially for a guy like Omari, who again, not the the biggest power puncher on the ground, not the biggest ground and pounder either. So I think that Tom Breeze will be able to deal with that. The longer this fight stays on the feet, the worse it is for Omari Akhmedov. And the liver, I think, Tom Breeze is in terms of finishing this fight. I think he could absolutely pick him apart on the feet. He's got to maintain his distance. He's got to make sure that he circles out, keeps his back off the cage. I believe, yeah, they are at Fight Island, so they're going to have the bigger cage. I'm not a huge proponent of the you know, the, the smaller cage being worse for certain guys. Um, I, I do think it is a bit of a factor, but not like a huge one where it's just like, okay, just because they're in the small cage, we're definitely getting a finish. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that type of guy but i do think that uh, this slightly bigger cage does favor tom breeze in terms of being able to have a little bit more room to to pivot off of the the, the center line and and uh you know when his back is being pushed up against the cage he has a, or closer to the cage and, and that warning track he's able to pivot and get out of the way of those uh, of those strikes and that clinch situation of omari who needs to get his hands on a, on breeze to get this victory i think he needs to drag this fight to the ground spend some time on top and Tom Breeze has been putting in work with his jiu-jitsu too. He's had a couple of grappling competitions and grappling fights, uh, although he did, you know, didn't really show the greatest grappling against Brendan Allen. Allen is a, a high-level jiu-jitsu guy, in my opinion, as well, too. But uh, I, I think we could see, you know, even if this fight does end up on the ground, I think we could see some good stuff from Breeze off of, off of his back. So I'm not too worried about Breeze there either. My only qualm and my only issue with Breeze is his mental state. I just, I can't, we, we can't trust it yet. At least in my eyes, I can't trust it yet. Skill for skill, he should absolutely blow Omar Yakmanov out of the water. Like he should be a minus 250 favorite if he could mentally keep it together. Now I need to see him go out there and show us fight after fight after fight, maybe three or four fights in a row where we see him not break, not mentally take a, a break or anything like that or or fold other under any type of pressure. That's when I'll start to be a little bit more confident in Tom Breeze. But 
If you're telling me skill for skill right now, I'm going to have to go with Tom. I don't see any value on Omari at that at that plus money. I feel like Tom Breeze has this fight wrapped up. Uh, he needs to keep it on the feet. Even if it does get on the ground, I'm interested to see how he's able to use his frame and the jujitsu that he's been, been able to, to accrue, the train that he's been able to accrue over the last uh, little while. And how effective he can be with it but his best work will definitely be done on the feet one line that i was actually intrigued to look at was tom breeze via ko as i think that's a very live option if it if it does remain on the feet tom breeze via ko is plus 230 i think that's a solid spot that's a good prop you might hear me trip about that on the propping you up stream that i do with cody later this week but uh yeah uh, I like Tom Brees to win this fight. Uh, he just needs to string together a couple of victories, get that confidence at, at its peak, and then I'm gonna go. Then I'd be willing to, you know, part ways with my money and let him go out there and, and fight for my money. So uh, I'll go with Tom Brees. Much better striking. Uh, the, the frame is gonna be very very tough for Omari to deal with as well, in my opinion. Uh, but and, and the cardio I think kind of washes itself out. I still think that Brees will have the slight advantage in that third round. Uh, so maybe Breeze third round is a possibility, but uh, it's been a long time since we've seen Omari finished in the cage, uh, close to five years now. So who knows? Maybe Breeze is that guy. Uh, it, it absolutely is a possibility. So once again, I'll go with Tom Breeze to win this fight via KO. Uh, but am I most confident in playing him at minus 150? Probably not. Uh, but I do like him to win this fight via KO, probably first or second round. Douglas Silva, DeAndrade versus Lerone Murphy. We got minus 290 on Lerone Murphy and plus 245 on De Silva. And let's start off with Lerone Murphy, who burst onto the scene against, uh, against Zubera Tuhugov. He came in as a massive underdog and managed to pull out a, a draw in that fight. That was a very, very close fight where we saw the takedowns of Zubera kind of frustrate Lerone Murphy later in this fight, but he was just running on fumes. It was uh, clear as day that uh, Zubera Tuhugov was very, very gassed in that fight as the fight drew on. And Lerone Murphy was clearly the fresher one and doing his best to land shots while defending takedowns, but unfortunately, Zubera was doing a good job of completing those takedowns. Now, Zubera, obviously, as gassed as he was, he wasn't able to do much damage on top, uh, and we did see that fight get stood up a couple of times, and then Lerone Murphy landing his shots before Zubera got the fight back to the ground. Um, there were a little bit of uh, inefficiencies in Lerone Murphy's takedown defense game. I'm hoping it's something that he's worked on moving forward because he looks like a very, very bright prospect. We're talking about a kid that's 9-0-1, obviously that one draw. He's 29 years old. He'll be 30 in July, so he's really going to have to start getting his uh, his game going. Um, but I think that this fight against uh, Douglas Silva DeAndraj should help him definitely get that and get it going. Now, he's only had... He had two fights in 2019. He had one fight in 2020, uh, and then he now he has his first fight in 2021. Luckily, it's in January, so hopefully he can squeeze out another two at least this year and keep his momentum rolling. Now I say momentum because the last time around he went out there and finished Ricardo Hamos via vicious ground and pound, probably one of the more vicious ground and pounds that you'll ever see in the UFC, and. Um, he used his reach and his leverage so well because he wasn't really even in full mount when he when he got the finish. He was in this standing position from roughly the full guard uh, and was still raining down shots on Ricardo Hamosh and uh, absolutely just put the hurting on him. Um, very, very impressive with the amount of uh, power he was able to generate from there. His game mainly seems to be the guy that goes out there and, and outstrikes opponents and obviously, obviously not, uh, knocks them out. Uh, but he uses his range very well too. His uh, his reach is very impressive too. Uh, we're talking about a guy that has 
Where's his reach at? 73 and a half inch reach with a 5'9 frame, whereas uh, Douglas over Deion Drudge, 5'7 with a 68 and a half inch reach. So we're talking about a 5 inch reach advantage for Lerone Murphy here. Uh, I like what we see from the guy. He's very patient. He uses the distance pretty well. Uh, if Again, if he shores up that takedown defense, I think he could truly be a problem to a lot of guys in this division. Um, I, I like what we see from him, and I was kind of surprised to see the line at minus 290 initially. But once you run the tape, you really understand why the line is as long as it is. Like, we haven't seen Douglas Silva DeAndrage until he pulled off, uh, since that victory that he pulled off against uh, Henan Barrow in uh, November of 2019. So we're talking about just over a month, uh, a year and two or three months since the last time we saw him. He was scheduled to fight uh, Movzara Avluev in, uh, in March of 2020. He had to pull out uh, due to an injury. Uh, but now here he is against Lerone Murphy. So let's go over to the Douglas Silva DeAndrade side. I like to call him like the poor man's John Lineker. And I say poor man's due to the fact that he's 35 years old. Uh, obviously isn't having as much success as John Lineker has had to the state, even though John Lineker is over at 1FC now. Um, but uh, he's always been compared to him. Like he he has the same almost build as him, negative 3% body fat, it seems as well. And, uh, you know, he throws with a lot of uh, power behind his strikes. He does throw in some combinations as well, which is pretty good. But he is kind of that guy that just kind of stalks you, moves forward pretty much the entire time and tries to land the, the big shots. Uh, the last loss that we saw him take was to Piotr Jan down at 135 pounds and then he went up to 145 against Henan Brown and was able to pull off the victory there too. So he did spend some time down at 135 uh, but after that Piotr Jan absolute demolishment he decided to go up to 145 and again given the fact that he probably has about like zero three uh minus negative three percent body fat i'm sure he's happy to have an extra 10 pounds the day before his fights um that Piotr Jan fight he was just absolutely outmatched Jan, much more technical um was able to really put it on him and then eventually really put him on put it on him in that second round which is why he didn't come out for that third round uh very very impressive performance from Piotr Jan there that was way back at ufc 232 in december of 2018 so we're a couple years removed now from that beating that he took he's 35 years old now you know what i mean he's definitely getting up there in age the mouths are coming on to him uh he only has three losses in his career but they're definitely coming later on in his career now too the rob font fight gets choked out the Piorion fight gets stopped there and i think this Lerone murphy fight is a very very tough one for him too um i think if we go strike for strike here, Laurel Murphy is probably going to be the better fighter. Uh, uses his distance a little bit better. Uh, should be able to kind of pot shot uh, Silva from the outside and then land some big shots once he starts putting his combinations together. But we've seen that from Douglas Silva where we see... Um, when he's fighting guys with a reach advantage, he doesn't mind walking through their shots and landing his own shots, just as we saw in his fight against Marlon Vera, who had a clear reach and height advantage on him. However, Marlon Vera of that day and age, which was February of 2018, that wasn't the Marlon Vera that we see now, which is a guy that you know throws with a lot more conviction, a lot more power, and a lot more confidence. Uh, compared to the Marlon Vera there, that which was just kind of just throwing his shots out there, uh, you know, doing a decent job of kind of maintaining distance, but we could absolutely see that Douglas just did not respect anything that was coming his way from Marlon, which is why he was fine to eat shots to go, get on the inside. Now, on the flip side, when he fights a guy like Rob Font, who throws with more conviction, who throws with more power, we saw him struggle a lot more to kind of close that distance against Rob Font. Same with Piotr Jan. We saw Piotr Jan throw with conviction, throw with power, and throw with confidence. And that really demoralized uh, the onslaught that we saw from Douglas Silva DeAndrade. 
Same with the Hennenbrau fight. We saw him, uh, obviously that first round is when Hennenbrau was most dangerous. We saw him kind of uh, survive getting taken taken down in that fight um, and then coming back and landing the more damaging shots on Hennenbrau who was fading as that fight was going on. Now I feel like if they had a different referee, the outcome of that fight could possibly be different. We saw Hennenbrau cl- complete a, a several takedowns in that fight and do some good work from on top. And in my opinion, he was doing enough activity to remain active to not be stood up. Unfortunately, Osiris Maya had other plans. He wanted to see these guys go out there and bang a little bit more. And uh, again, if it was any other uh, referee, I feel like they would have saw the work that Hennenbrau was doing from on top and kind of let them ride it out from that position. And we would have saw Hennenbrau probably pull away with uh, a decision victory there with the takedowns. And I feel like that could be an advantage for Lerone Murphy here, who we saw just in his last fight, how devastating his ground and pound could be. And it doesn't seem like Douglas Silva DeAndrade has the greatest takedown defense. I feel like we'll see uh, Lerone kind of test it out on the feet. But if he wants to play it as safe as possible, it's to drag Douglas to the ground and do some good work from on top. I don't really think that Douglas has much to offer in the jiu-jitsu department here so i'm not sure if lerone will have much to worry about if he does end up taking this fight to the ground even from the full guard we can uh, expect a ton of damage and power coming from lerone and i kind of feel as though that might be the approach he takes in this fight is getting that takedown and is kind of just landing those big shots because i feel like that's the higher percentage way for him to win this fight rather than going out there and kind of just trying to maintain his distance and keep from the big shots of Douglas Silva DeAndraj. That's again, that's where Douglas does his best work when he's able to move forward, land his big winning shots to close the distance. However, the longer this fight plays out on the feet, I think the more discouraged Douglas will get because I feel like Lerone will have the speed advantage, he'll have the power advantage, and then he has the reach advantage too where he should be able to maintain that distance and make it very difficult for Douglas to, to close that distance. Now we see that the confidence is a huge part of Douglas's game in terms of when he goes out there and gets the victory, and I feel like that confidence will slowly be sucked out by Lerone Murphy who's going to be landing the bigger shots from range as uh, Douglas tries to close the distance. Lerone has a very, very uh, interesting frame, especially in his upper body with that reach that he has and how he's able to cover the distance that he does with his strikes. And I think that's really going to pose a lot of problems for Douglas here, which is why I'm understanding as to why this uh, this line is as wide as it currently is. So I, I really like Lerone Murphy in this spot. I, I was looking for a reason to bet Douglas here. Uh, outside of like a, a flash KO, even that's something that we haven't really seen Lerone Murphy uh, get finished by. He is undefeated coming into this fight. Uh, undefeated on the amateur scene as well too. Uh, so you got to believe that his durability is on point. And the last time that we saw Douglas Silva DeAndraj finish somebody via strikes was a spinning back fist against Henry Briones way back in 2016 when he was a little bit younger than he currently is right now. And then even before that, it was his pre-UFC career where um, he he finished somebody. So I, I like... I like Lerone here. I think he could possibly be live for a finish as well. I saw the under two and a half is around that minus 115 range. I think that could be a great bet as well too. But I truly believe that the power, distance, and uh, possibly ground and pound, if that's the way that Lerone Murphy wants to approach this fight, could be very, very beneficial for him. So I'll go with Lerone Murphy. I think he gets it done probably, let's say... Uh, second round drags this fight to the floor and really starts to put it on Douglas and, and ultimately ends up getting the ground and pound finish so I'll go with Lerone Murphy via second round KO match now versus Tyson Nam we got minus 135 on Tyson Nam and plus 115 on Matt Dangerous now let's start off with Dangerous now who's actually supposed to be or actually supposed to have fought Tyson Nam two prior times 
The first time was in September of last year, and then they were rescheduled for December 19th. Unfortunately, both those times they pulled out, I believe, COVID-19 related. Uh, well, Chanel had a botched weight cut for September, and then Chanel withdrew as well in uh, December. So not entirely sure what happened that second time around, but here they are. Um, <clears throat> about four months three to four months after they were originally scheduled to fight each other uh and this is a fight that i've been intrigued by this entire time um i've already broken it down before so if you guys have been around my my channel for a while now you guys have already heard my 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 take on this and uh nothing's really changed like if anything i'm a, I'm a little bit more hesitant on matt schnell now but uh i still think that this is a fight that's very very winnable for him so let's start off with match now who's shown off a pretty decent run during that uh, marco beltran naiki inoue uh luis mocha and jordan espinoza run four four straight fights and finished both of the second ones via triangle choke um and then he ran into alexandre pantoja in a fight that he was actually performing pretty well up until the point that he got knocked out. And that, that's kind of the same type of narrative that we have to take into this fight against Tyson Nam. Because uh, actually, kind of, kind of not, not to the fullest extent. Because Alexandre Pantoja, great combinations, great striking overall, uh, great output, uh, you know, great fighter all around. Tyson Nam, on the other hand, talking about a guy that's strictly a headhunter, going out there, uh, even in the Jerome Rivera fight, I think 78 or 90 or 80% of his fight, uh, strikes were strictly to the head. The guy's is a straight headhunter. One of the statistics that I actually put out on Twitter before I actually recorded this was that uh, Tyson Nam, out of the seven rounds that he's completed in the UFC, so that's including that's the, the Sergio Pettis fight, that's the... Um, uh, that's the Jerome Rivera fight, the one round that they had, and then the Kai Kara France fight. He hasn't won one of those seven rounds, so it's it's just an attribution to his low output style, which is kind of just surrounded around head hunting. He's going out there and more often than not just trying to take the uh, take his opponent's head off. Uh, the, the most recent decision victory that he won was over a guy named Shojin Miki, which was on the Hawaiian uh, regional scene. Uh, that guy was 6-4 and four going into that fight, and that was a five-round fight. But that was a fight where the guy just didn't even seem like he, he truly wanted to be in there. You know, I mean, Tyson Nam was just having success off of just pot-shotting him and picking him apart from the outside. Now what match now, you're getting a guy that has throws in great combinations. His boxing is very crisp. His hands look very, very good. His head, is, uh, head movement looks really good as well, too. And his jiu-jitsu overall is actually very much improved. So I, I'm liking what we're seeing from match now, but obviously the only concern here is, one, uh, obviously the fuckery that's been happening recently with him pulling out of these fights, and two, the possible chin issues. And if you have chin issues going up against Tyson Nam, you got to be a little bit concerned. However... I don't mind taking the shot at plus money. We got plus 115 currently on Match Nell, and I don't mind that at all. Um, even if you want to look at the Match Nell via decision prop, uh, that might be a little bit juicier. Let's look at what that is. Match Nell via decision is plus 225 at certain spots. And uh, yeah, it, like I said, it, you, you don't really see Tyson Nam going out there and getting finished. The last time he got finished was by Marlon Marais way back in 2013. Uh, I think Machinot could absolutely go out there and just put on uh, a proper striking clinic, mix up kicks and and boxing and, and just really get his hands going. He has a two-inch reach advantage. He has a one-inch height advantage as well too. So that should definitely play into this, even though Jerome Rivera was somebody that had a four-inch reach advantage on Tyson Am and was still getting knocked out. If we remember, most of that knockout actually came off of a counter to a, uh, a leg kick that uh, Jerome Rivera was throwing for the majority of that first round. And then it seemed like the first one that he threw in the second round, Tyson Nam was just waiting for it. And he landed the perfect bomb to, to, to put his lights out and follow up with some ground and pounded it. But 
I don't really like backing fighters that have that type of mentality that is just, you know, head hunting, low output. If they're not able to put you out, more than likely they're going to lose a decision. And I think when you have a guy as crisp with crisp boxing like a match Nell, uh, you, you could be in, uh, you know, you, you could get some solid value off of an underdog here. Um, it's it's just the the the. It's really just the power uh, and the chin issues, the power from Tyson M and the chin, the possible chin issues of a match now. That's very, very, uh, skept- that has me skeptical for sure. Uh, most of his losses have started to come via punches. He lost via punches to Rob Font, lost to Hector Sandoval as well via ground and pound before that four or five winning streak that he went on. And then obviously most recently to Alexandre Pantoja. Yeah, I'm going to really have to think about it in terms of uh, if I'd make a play on this fight. I'm still going to pick Match Nell. I do believe that he'll have the combinations, uh, the the higher output. Um, I'm hoping that his head movement and everything will be good enough to stay away from the big shots of Tyson Nam or at least drag this fight later and later so that the power is kind of off of Tyson Nam's strikes. Uh, Though Tyson Nam does have a third round head kick knockout victory over Ali Bagutinov in a fight that he was handily losing, um... You know, the, the power could always be there. Uh, that came from a head kick. Most of his pun- or knockouts have come via his punches. So uh, Matt Schnell is definitely going to have to be very wary about that too. So I'll go with Matt Danger Snow. Um, th- there are a couple other dogs barking on this card as well too that might actually take my take my risk rather than Matt Schnell. But I do think that uh, Schnell is worth a little bit of a, a sprinkle. Maybe even that decision prop if you don't want to take the plus 115. But uh, I love Danger in the spot. I, ju- I just think that he needs to avoid the power. Um, the longer he does that, the better it is for him. The more combinations he's able to get off, even if he wants to go the, the grappling route and the, the clinch route, that might be even a better path of victory for him in terms of just staying close, keeping close, so that uh, Tyson M doesn't really have the the space to, to generate the momentum and the power to knock him out. So uh, I'm going with Match now. I, I just think he's a really good spot here. Plus 115 is, is not a bad uh, spot, again, for to, to fade a fighter that's very low, low output and is only looking for knockouts. I'm okay with that. And given how crisp, clean, and, and technical of a striker that Matt Schnell is, I, I, I do like this spot for Schnell. So uh, once again, I'll go with Schnell to win this fight via decision. Roxanne Modafferi versus Viviani Arujo. We got minus 335 on Viviani Arujo and plus 275 on Roxanne Modafferi. Let's start off with Modafferi, who's coming off a victory over Andrea Lee. That's the second time she's actually uh, defeated her. Uh, and that was after losing to Lauren Murphy as well. So she's one in one in this COVID era right now. And um, I'm kind of bummed that I was the guy that was on Andrea Lee at heavy chalk odds last time against Roxanne Modafferi. I truly thought that we saw a much more improved uh, Andrea Lee in her prior fights uh, compared to the first time they fought. Uh, however, Roxanne was still able to catch the kicks and, uh, you know, pretty much just clinch fuck uh, Andrea Lee for the, for the majority of that fight. We did see Andrea Lee have a solid second round. Unfortunately, in the third round, Roxanne Modafferi was still able to get the fight to the ground with relative ease and then just do some good damage on top. That's pretty much Roxanne's game. And something that she seems to have wor- been working on over the last... I'd say year or two years is her strength and conditioning because she definitely does look like a fighter that's been focusing on you know being stronger getting stronger so she's able to utilize her strongest aspect in her MMA game which is her grappling and her jiu-jitsu you know she's managed to pull off a couple of uh, upset victories in the past couple of years now most notably over Antonina Shevchenko and uh, Macy Barber last time around but obviously there's an asterisk around that fight due to uh, Macy Barber I believe tearing her ACL in that fight now 
we know what we're getting with Modafer. You know what I mean? She wants to drag the fight to the ground. She wants to clinch you as much as possible. You know, um, try to get that body lock and try to drag you to the ground. Maybe not with the best technique, but more so just muscling at you, uh, muscling you down at points. And she's pretty successful when she's able to do it uh, against girls like Andrea Lee and obviously Antonina and uh, Macy Barber as well in that fight. Uh, but then when there are people that are able to get out of those situations, it gets very tough for her because they're striking... Let's face it, it's always going to need work. She just looks so uncomfortable in that situation. But she works with what she has. Like, even in the, the, the Andrea Lee fight on the feet, like, she's the one kind of with a little bit more output. Like, she's going in there, landing a couple shots, and then just circling out, changing angles, and, and just, you know, robotically throwing her punches out there and landing and doing some decent work. And then when she wants to close the distance, she just puts her chin down, bites down on her mouthpiece, and just wings forward with a bunch of strikes. Uh, and that's more than enough for her to be able to, to, to you know, clinch up with her opponents and either drag them up against, uh, drag them to the floor, or do some good work up against the cage now she was un unsuccessful in doing so against lauren murphy as lauren murphy showed decent uh, strength in return and did a good job in terms of digging underhooks uh reversing positions and then getting out of the way and obviously doing a much better job with the striking than what roxanne modafari was doing now on the viviani arujo side of things uh when she made her ufc debut and put on a phenomenal performance i was just like okay this girl is the next big thing, you know. I mean, I truly thought that we'd see a lot of good work from uh, from Viviani Arujo, and she had a ton of potential. Then she runs into uh, Jessica I, uh, and I had a pretty good game plan, you know, center around leg kicks, and then whenever Viviani was crashing in forward and landing her strikes. Um, you know, Jessica, I pretty much just stood her ground and threw a couple combinations, and they were enough to kind of take the judges' scorecards. She did, uh, you know, do some good work up against the cage and doing some clinch work, but uh, when she lost that fight, it, it was a little bit of a red flag on me uh, for me on Viviani Arujo, so I was kind of like taken aback by it, to be honest. Then she comes back and she has a great performance against Montana De La Rosa, uh, and showed that you know as soon as anything gets into grappling ranges or or the clinch positions, she does a good job of digging the underhook on either side and then just getting out of the way pivoting out of the way using her fast twitch muscles to get out of these situations because she's a fast twitch kind of girl i mean from her striking you definitely see it when she's crashing forward with her muay thai strikes her her kicks her punches whatever it is uh she does a good job of doing damage and then getting out of the way the thing that is concerning for me unfortunately is the alexis davis fight wherein that the majority of that second round she spent on her back and we didn't see much resistance in terms of her getting off her back. And that was very, very concerning. If you're getting taken down by a girl like Alexis Davis and then held down to that extent, I think Roxanne Modafari could be successful in doing so as well too. However, I think the difference here though is that we're seeing an improvement from uh, Viviani Arujo on a fight-to-fight -fight basis. Like her, her striking just looks so crisp. She 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 knows and, and her fight IQ is definitely getting much better in terms of as soon as the clinch position is initiated by her opponent, she digs for the underhooks right away and gets out of the way. Like she doesn't stay still for a second. She doesn't allow you to get set in those clinch positions because she's already working to either do her own damage or do what she needs to, to get out of those bad positions. And that's where I think that Roxanne is going to have some issues. She might have a little bit of a strength advantage here over Viviani, but I just don't think that she'll be able to hold her in those situations. And I think she's really going to pay for it when things do get that close and, and that tight. Now, we, we did see Roxanne Modafari get rocked in her fight against Lauren Murphy, and I think that's just a tale of, you know, the, the miles on Roxanne's uh, body. You know, she she's a very experienced fighter. She has 20, what is it, 20, 25 victories and 17 losses. So we're talking about a fighter with 42 career fights. This is going to be a 43rd career fight, and she's fighting 
arguably the best striker physical specimen that she's fought in the last little while like with Andrew Lee you're seeing her just throwing sloppy kicks and just throwing slow kicks not really returning them and that's where Roxanne was able to capitalize in terms of getting some takedowns whereas Viviani is very crisp she's very sharp she's very in and out with her movements and her strikes that I don't think that we'll see Roxanne actually get a hold of her now at minus 335 I'm not the most keen on parlaying or betting Arujo in this spot. I do think she wins, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just reeling a bit still from her losing to or, or her uh, Roxanne beating Andrew Lee. And I know they're com- two completely different fighters. We see a lot more urgency from the Arujo side. But that 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 Alexis Davis fight just really sticks out to me. And if Roxanne does end up getting the takedown, I'm I'm a little bit concerned. I'll be shitting my pants, and I don't want to be shitting my pants when you have a minus three thirty five favorite in Arujo. So um. I do think Arujo wins. I think she could be live for a finish too, plus 280 for her to win via K or via to win inside the distance. And then even the under two and a half is at plus plus 280. So you can bet either side. And you might as well bet the under two and a half if you want to bet Arujo inside the distance. Um, seeming as you get the same price, but it also covers the the option of potentially Roxanne getting a finish, but I just don't see Roxanne getting a finish. Let's actually check the last time that we've seen Roxanne Modafari get a finish. Um, I don't even think she has a finish inside the the, the UFC. Let's see. Um, ba, 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 ba. She beat Barb Honchak via elbows way back in July of 2018. But even Honchak was kind of on the way out. Um, yeah, she won via TKO a bunch on the, 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 the Ultimate Fighter. And even in her Invicta day, she does a good job of kind of just holding opponents down and just screwing them over and, and winning via that way in, in terms of just holding them down and then ground and pounding them. Um, yeah, I, I'm still going with Orujo. I think she'll be able to keep it on the feet. I think she'll be able to have good success with her striking uh, and stay away from the clinch positions as much as possible. But uh, in, in terms of like like making her a lock of the night play or anything like that, I'm staying away from that. Obviously, she'll be in a couple degenerate parlays, but nothing official. I, I can't put her in anything official at those odds. Now, if we see a huge swing during fight week and we see a, a ton of love come in on Roxanne Modafferi because she's going out there and beating girls like Macy Barber and, and Andrea Lee and Antonina Shevchenko, and if the, the masses and, and the public see that, they'll be like, oh, here's another spot to potentially fade a heavy women's MMA favorite uh, with somebody who's done it successfully in the past before. Maybe they'll put some money on Roxanne, but that money's not coming from me. And, and I hope it doesn't come from any of my followers either. But I'll go with Arujo. I'll, I'll go by decision, but I do think plus 280 for her to win inside the distance is worth a little bit of a stab considering the diminishing uh, durability that I think we've, we've been seeing from Roxanne lately. So uh, yeah, I'll go with uh, Viviani Arujo to win this fight via decision. Ike Villanueva versus Vinicius Mojea. We got minus 135 on Ike and plus 115 on Vinicius. And the part that, or the, the line that actually intrigues me the most would be the under one and a half, which currently sits around that minus 115 range. Now let's start off with Ike Villanueva, who's coming off a loss to Jordan Wright last time around. And before that, he took, uh, he took on Chase Sherman and came up short in that fight as well. Both of those fights ending well under the uh, one and a half round range as well too. Before that, he was coming off two straight victories over uh, UFC veterans in uh, Roger Navarra's and Rashad Coulter. Both of those fights, he finished in the first round, and then he found himself in against Chase Sherman. Uh, like I said, in coming into that UFC debut, now he was completely outgunned in that Chase Sherman fight. That was a fight where it was two primary strikers. Uh, I'd say Ike had the slight power advantage, whereas Chase Sherman showed a much better versatility to his striking game. 
Now, it obviously came out a couple months afterwards that Chase Sherman popped for USADA. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the what the drugs were that he popped for, uh, but uh, I will cut him some slack. I even tweeted out earlier today saying that I was very impressed with Chase Sherman's performance, and it wasn't a performance that was really talked about when we were reviewing 2020. Uh, and then quickly after my guy, Best Fight Picks, hits me up and lets me know that uh, Chase Sherman actually ended up testing positive uh, under USADA's rule. But I cut him a little bit of slack because he took that fight on six days notice. Obviously, whatever he was taking, he wasn't under the the, the assumption that he'd be in the UFC or that quickly. Uh, so he wasn't able to readjust whatever plan he was on uh, nutritionally or even if he was actually guilty. Well, I'm sure he was guilty of taking those things. But then again, when you come into the UFC and, and you see this huge band list uh, of substances, I'm sure it, uh, a lot of fighters have to take into consideration all of these things and kind of change up their approach with their diet and whatever they're putting into their body. So I'll cut Chase a little bit of slack there, but you also got to give um, Ike Villanueva kind of an asterisk in that fight going up against a guy like Chase who, you know, clearly was uh, better than him that night. Also, uh, Chase's approach in that fight was great too. You know, setting up the the hands with the leg kicks, especially the calf kick, really damaged the lead leg of Ike, and you could definitely see the damage of it in that second round. Quickly after that, Chase Sherman goes out there and absolutely brutalizes Ike Villanueva and finishes him. Uh, but it was a fight where we saw power going up against uh, technical abilities and a way more uh, diverse striking game from Chase. Ike's game is predominantly based around his power like he has this beautiful blitz where he clo uh, closes the distance with a couple hooks and a, and a straight to lead it off uh, but he has a ton of power in his hands and we've seen that obviously with the amount of uh, victories he's gotten via KO the exact number is 13 of his 17 victories have come via KO um, or sorry 16 victory victories uh, in terms of the under one and a half, now both of these guys um, from the Ike Villanueva side, we got, I believe it was 21 out of the 27 fights were finished inside the distance. And for uh, uh, Vinicius Mojea, it was 11 out of 13. So, or yeah, 11 out of 13, which is absolutely crazy. I believe the final numbers, my math might be off on this, but it was 31 out of 41 fights uh, combined that these guys hit the under one and a half. And I feel like with their styles, we'll kind of get the same thing. Like I said, Ike Villanueva has a very striking dominant uh, fight. Um, in the Chase Sherman fight, he came obviously undersized. He was about 20 or 30 pounds lighter. Um, you know, he is a light heavyweight. He took that fight on at heavyweight. Then we saw him at light heavyweight against Jordan Wright. Jordan Wright coming in about five pounds under the limit. And then Ike Villanueva coming pretty much in at the limit there. Um, we saw the speed difference there. That's why Jordan Wright was so successful in that fight as he was much faster, uh, hit with a lot more power. And then eventually it was that, uh, that knee and that clinch that really screwed up Ike Villanueva's night. Uh, ends up with a disgusting gash on his eyebrow, which eventually led to the end of the fight. Uh, so he didn't get clean put out by Jordan Wright, but he did sustain a lot of damage, and that cut was very, very nasty. He pretty much knew right off the bat, as soon as they stopped the fight, to check the cut, he knew it was going to be bad. And unfortunately for him, he ends up losing there. However, now he comes in against uh, Vinicius Mojeo in a, in a fight that I feel like is catered towards him, in a fight that he should absolutely go out there and win. I say that because Vinicius Mojeo is a guy who's been taking a ton of damage over his last couple of fights. He's on a uh, three-fight skid, all of them coming... Uh, via finish while that Paul Craig one was close to being a finish by TKO and ended up being a rear naked choke after he was bombing on him couldn't find the finish so he sunk in the choke and was able to get the tap quickly thereafter but all three of those uh coming in the first round um 
even the John Allen fight, that was a crazy fight where he took a lot of bombs, was able to sustain it, and then uh, comes in against, um, uh, comes into that second round, gets John John Allen to the ground, uh, has a very tight armbar. John Allen gets out of it, and then he changes over and gets the the full mount once again, and then locks in. I believe it was a, a triangle choke. Um, beautiful finish for him in there. The one thing that I'm trying to get at is both of these guys are very offensive minded. Not often do you see them really just pushing each other up against the cage. Like Vinicius only does that to try to get this fight to the ground. He's not really working to kind of just hold you up against the cage and, and damage you from there. He's looking to, you know, set up that takedown no matter what it takes. And I think he could be successful in getting Ike down. But in the same sense, I feel like Ike could also be successful in kind of torching Vinicius as uh, Vinicius is trying to close the distance. Vinicius makes it pretty clear like he uses his strikes to kind of uh, push opponents uh, towards the cage and then eventually he just bull rushes forward engages in the clinch and tries to get these guys to the ground I, I find it's going to be one or the other and I'm, I'm I'm leaning the Ike way I feel like the diminishing durability of Mojea is going to catch up to him here I think Ike has the power in his hands to actually put him out too um but in case this fight does end up hitting the ground, I think that Vinicius will use his size. It seems like he's a much bigger fighter here uh, as an advantage to eventually get a get a submission victory. Now, half of Ike Villanueva's losses, or just under half, five of them to be specific, five out of 11 losses were via submission. Uh, and we know that Vinicius Mojea is a very offensive-minded jiu-jitsu practitioner. Um, I feel like if this fight does hit the ground, it's going to be hard for Ike to find his way back to his feet. But if this doesn't hit the ground, I think that uh, villain or Vinicius is going to have a ton of issues dealing with the power coming his way from Mojea. Now, I, I lump Mojea into the, the Roger Naviruses and, and the Rashad Coulters of the world, which is why I believe that we'll see a, a finish from Ike here. Um, but that minus 135 line, not too bad. Like if I was getting it closer to the, the even lines or even plus money on Ike, I might consider a, a bet on him there but i i like the under one and a half definitely a little bit more i i think that it covers both results i i don't see ike being pushed up against the cage and kind of held there um for too long which would prolong this fight i see him kind of getting out of those situations if he doesn't get taken down and then uh putting his punches together and really dropping and rocking mojea so my, my spot here is the under one and a half i think it has a ton of value especially around that pick line i'm not entirely sure why it's um, you know, at that price, I expected it to be closer to that minus 140, minus 150 range. But as the fight gets closer, like I'm recording this on the Sunday before the fight, maybe once Monday and Tuesday hit, we'll see a little bit more action come in on that one and a half. But I like the one and a half, under one and a half. I'll go with the Ike side as well, too. I think he lands a bomb on Vinicius, rocks him, hurts him, drops him, and then follows up with some big punches afterwards. But uh, yeah, it, it just does not look good when Vinicius is on the feet. He looks very uncomfortable. He doesn't throw in combinations, obviously, and more often than not, it's just to set up either a takedown or to push or try to back up his opponent as much as possible and then rush in and try to get the takedown. But I don't think it's going to work against Ike here. Um, I wish I was more confident in picking Ike straight up here, but I'm really not. I'd rather take the under the under one and a half. I just don't see this fight going past that seven and a half minute mark, and that's where my money's going to be. So I'll be going with Ike, or sorry, I'll go be, I'll go with Ike Villanueva via KO round one. But my favorite play on in this fight is going to be the under one and a half around that pick a mark. Orly Alves versus Munir Lazez. We got minus two twenty five on Munir Lazez and plus one eighty five. For Warley Alves, let's start off with the UFC vet Warley Alves, who's coming off a loss to um, why can't I think of it already right off the top of my head? It should be Randy Brown, obviously. So he's one in three in his last uh, one and two in his last three fights. He's gone uh, 
uh, he, he lost to James Cross, beat Sergio Moraes, and then lost to uh, Randy Brown via submission last time around. So the tail is pretty much out there on, on Warley Alves. If you're able to survive that first five minutes, more often than not, you should go out there and win that fight. Obviously, it wasn't that case for uh, Salim Talhari and Sultan Aliyev, uh, but that Talhari fight was very, very close and probably could have gone the either, other way. And not to mention that fight was also in Brazil, so possibly some sort of fuckery going on there. But uh, we know what it is with Warley. He used to be this big bad wolf that everybody was afraid to fight. But ever since uh, you know Brian Barbarena was able to take him out, and then Kamar Usman right after that, he's only gone since the Brian Barbarena fighter, and including that Barbarena fight, he's gone three and four in his last seven fights, and that's coming off a victory over Colby uh, Covington to start that streak. So huge ceiling for him initially and then eventually people start to see and uh, figure out why uh, or how you could actually go out there and beat a guy like this it's just being able to survive that first round not letting your neck you know get get captured by him uh and just you know movement pace pressure and uh, and striking from a distance and what are we getting with Munir Lizaz exactly that now, I usually like to pull my brakes on some of these prospects that are coming into the UFC that have a very impressive victory last time around. And there is a little bit of, like, you can throw a little bit of shade in terms of Munir Lizez and when he fought uh, Abdul Razak Al-Hassan in terms of the fact that Al-Hassan is a little bit of a one-dimensional fighter. He has a great judo background uh, to, 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 to bring to the cage, but he never really uses it. Like, we just know him as that guy that we saw in the first minute to two minutes of the Lezaz fight, which is going out there and just swinging bombs and hoping that he could land something that could put something out or, or could put Lezaz out. However, we saw great durability from Lezaz, who ate some very clean shots and was still able to come back and go out there and, and just, just implement his game plan to a T. He absolutely lit up the front leg of... Uh, Abdul Razak Al-Hassan and was forcing him to kind of switch stances more often than not in that fight and made him very, very uncomfortable. Um, you know, landed a couple of good takedowns, showed great fight IQ as well too, knowing that the round is kind of coming to a close, so he went out there and goes for a takedown just to secure the round. But he shows great versatility of strikes from jabs, punches, hooks, uh, spinning stuff, flying stuff, uh, body kicks, uh, teeps to the leg, like... Everything that he has in his striking arsenal is pretty much everything that we've ever seen in the cage, and it's it's awesome. Like it's great to see him go out there and put on that type of striking performance, especially against a guy like Al Hassan. Now I feel like he has a similar opponent here in Warley Alves, who's kind of just reliant on that one narrow path to victory, which is going for the neck or hoping for a, a, a knockout. But there's no way he's going to be able to give victory outside of that five minutes against a guy like Munir Lezez, who moves as well as he does, maintains distance as well as he does, and has success in the clinch, which is where Warley Alves has had success before in terms of just out-muscling guys and, and getting his work done there. I feel like going back to the James Cross fight is a great way to kind of predict how this fight is going to go. You know, almost similar styles, whereas, you know, James Cross likes to use his reach, pops the jab out there very well, has great kicks down the middle, and ultimately, he used a beautiful knee to set up the finish against Warley Alves, and I wouldn't be surprised to see the same type of finish coming here from Manila Lezez, who shows the same type of skill with that with that, uh, with that that step-in knee that he has. It's it's beautiful, it covers great distance as well, too, and it covers great height as well, since he's a 6-1 fighter. 5'11 is what Warley Alves is going to be coming in at in terms of his height, and I feel like that almost plays into the, 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 the game of Munir Lezez to be able to control that distance. Munir will also have a four-inch reach advantage, which should play huge dividends for him in terms of maintaining his distance with his kicks and then obviously with his punches and his jab. Um, 
yeah, I, I absolutely understand the, the love that Munir is getting, especially in this fight, especially driving his his odds from where they were, where they opened at. I just want to confirm where they opened at, but I remember looking at the odds and being like, okay, this is absolute disgrace of an opener. But he opened at, I believe it was Bet Online that opened up his line first. They opened it at even odds, at, at minus 115. And then it drops all the way down to minus 200. Now we're sitting around that minus 220 range on a couple of these websites. But this is a great spot for Munir. Like, it's another spot where he, the, his opponent has a very narrow path to victory. And if he's able to survive, and I don't even think it's going to be surviving, he's going to go out there and do his game plan, which is just pick apart Warley Alves from the distance, land good shots with his kicks, keep him out, keep keep keeping Warley Alves at bay. And uh, even if this fight does hit the, the clinch position up against the cage, I think Munir could eventually be the, the stronger guy and even do much better damage in those positions as well too. So I see a very, very narrow path to victory for Warley Alves in this fight. Another good spot could potentially be the under 2.5 at minus 115 as I believe that Warley will not be able to take the pre pressure and pace that Munir is going to be putting on and he will possibly fade after that six to seven minute mark. So that's where I see Munir getting the finish. So probably second or third round finish for Munir here. If you are a little bit skeptical of paying a little bit of juice on Lizez, I would uh, I would suggest the under two and a half. I think that's a great spot as well too. But yeah, uh, I love Munir to win in this fight. I, I It's hard for me to see truly how he gets finished. And also one thing that I'm going to say is uh, he his only loss is to a guy named Eldar Eldorov, who's 11 and one currently and is probably one of the best prospects on the scene. Uh, his only loss, Khabib Nurmagomedov. You know what I mean? So I, I really like, uh, you know, his only losses to that guy. Uh, Eldar Eldorov, very crushing top pressure as well too. However, it still was not able to get Munir out of there. So even if Warley Alves goes out there and takes him down, I just don't see a path in terms of him being able to pull off a submission. So uh, I do like Munir. I think he gets it done, probably second or third round. Uh, but I, I'm big on this kid. And this is another tailor-made matchup for him. So I do think that, uh, you know, I, I do want to see him against other competition. Maybe guys that don't gas, maybe that aren't as one-dimensional as uh, Zaka Hassan or Awar Alves. But I truly think that this kid has a high ceiling. Uh, how he deals with proper wrestlers, that's beyond me. So, I, I you know, obviously we've seen him not be able to deal with Elder Alderov and we know we have guys in the UFC that can replicate that type of wrestling game plan. Luckily for him, he doesn't have to worry too much here about that with uh, with Warley Alves. So I like uh, Munir. I think he gets his fight done again second or third round once Warley Alves starts huffing and puffing. And uh, I, I think he's worth the juice. I, minus 213 is, is a line that I can currently get at Pinnacle. I'm gonna. I don't know what I'm gonna do with it. I got. I gotta. I gotta see what, it, what what's happening right now. I'm recording this on January 13th, which is uh, roughly just a week before the fight is actually supposed to happen. Uh, but yeah, I, I like Munir Lizaz to win this fight via for, uh, second or third round TKO. Time for the main event. We got Neil Magny versus Michael Chiesa. Let's start off with Neo Magni, who's at minus 135. Obviously, Michael Chiesa around that plus 110 mark. Uh, starting off with Neo Magni, the guy's on a little bit of a career resurgence. People were writing him off after the Lorenz Larkin loss back in 2016. Then he went on to win, go one and one, and then they start writing him off after the Rafael dos Anjos loss back in 2017. And then even Santiago Ponzinibbio uh, uh, went out there and finished him in 2018. 
Um, I believe that a lot of people were thinking that that was the end of the road for Neil. And now here he is, three fights later on a three-fight winning streak over wins, with wins over Li Jingliang in a fight that he came in as an underdog in. Uh, goes out there and beats Anthony Rocco Martin as well as Robbie Lawler on short notice last time around. Now he's getting Michael Chiesa, who's coming off a vi big victory as well earlier this year when he was go able to go out there and completely outgrapple um, Rafael Dos Anjos. With Neil Magny, we obviously know what his game plan and what his style is. He wants to go out there, put the pace on you, put the pressure on you, and just let his cardio drown you. Luckily for him, this fight's a five-round fight, so he has 25 minutes to go out there and implement his game plan. I feel like the most danger that he's going to find is within that first round and a half. That's where Michael Chiesa is going to be the most live in terms of being able to get a submission. Uh, Neil, you know, kind of harder to take down, uh, but can be taken down, obviously, but obviously very hard to keep down as well, too. Now, Rafael Dos Anjos did a very good job in terms of keeping it down, and he just seemed like a step ahead of him every single time uh, that fight hit the ground, uh, transitioning very well, and it made Neil Magny look like a complete white belt on the ground. However, when you see him in uh, later fights, he does a much better job of getting back to his feet, keeping uh, his opponent working, and not really giving up any type of submission attempts or anything like that. Um, I love his style of just forward-moving style. No real, like... Like, he has technique, don't get me wrong, but it's not like he does everything to a T. He just wants to keep punching, like, keep a, keep a jab in your face, keep a, keep a hand in your face, and just stay in your zone, make you uncomfortable, whether it's just clinching you up against a cage, uh, landing some good knees, landing some good shots in that dirty boxing range, or just tripping you and doing some good damage from on top, just like you did against Li Jingliang. Now... I feel like if this was a three-round fight, which is what it was originally was supposed to put, supposed to be, uh, this would favor Michael Chiesa a little bit more. However, now that we're talking about five rounds, this has more time for Michael Chiesa to to kind of drain his gas tank, which is something that he does quite a lot in his fights. Like if you watch most of his fights, uh, he, he's just doing what he can to kind of close the distance and get his paws on you, get get you to the ground, and then get his jujitsu game going. But you know, if he's not able to get it going, he his cardio seems to have a little bit of, of a drop-off after that one-and-a-half-round mark. And that's where things are going to get a little bit fishy for him because Neil Magny is not going to let him breathe. The takedowns are only going to get harder, and uh, the damage coming his way is only going to start to stack up more and more. So, um, you know, I, I, one thing I also find very interesting about the Chiesa side is how uncomfortable he almost looks in that striking range. Like, he, he doesn't really throw combinations often. He's kind of just flicking shots out there to kind of gauge his range, kind of get you thinking about the strikes, and then eventually just trying to close that distance to get this fight to the ground. But he he exerts so much energy to get these takedowns that if he's not able to get a submission, things get quite fishy. Like, Diego Sanchez had a lot of success in terms of, you know, staying out of submissions and staying out of bad positions, but was still able to get back to his feet and, and do some good damage himself too. Kiesa was still obviously able to get the decision victory that night, but it's just not a good look when he's you know, huffing and puffing a little bit in that third round, or even after, you know, near the ending of that second round, you can definitely see that he's having issues with, um, with, with, with keeping his cardio in check and making sure that he's just going about it in the safest manner possible. He's not going to be able to do that here against Neil. Like, I, I don't think that we can see uh, Kiesa win a decision here. Uh, and I truly think that he has about 10 minutes to get it done. If it doesn't get it done within that first two rounds, it's going to be a Neo Magni fight all day. So I absolutely understand why this line is starting to move to the Neo Magni side, as I feel like he has most of the advantage in, in this fight and a wider path to victory compared to Neo, uh, compared to Michael Chiesa, who kind of just has to, 
you know, hope that 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 uh, he can get the submission or the TKO in that first round with some ground and pound. I just don't see it happening. I, I think that Neil Magny has found his step once again, getting big victories in his last two fights, especially over a prospect like Li Jing Liang in that first one. It's huge for his confidence, and, and he's doing very, very well uh, in his uh, in his last fights. His 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 fight IQ is off the charts as well too. Like to go out there and immediately clinch up with Robbie Lawler, try to suck that power out of him, and just keep the fight as close as possible, where the power of Robbie Lawler doesn't really come into play. Very very smart from him, and even in the third round, where uh, you know he knew that obviously Robbie was down, and he's going to go out there and try to you know knock his head off. He he got into a clinch position with Neo Magni in the middle of the cage, or with Robbie in in the middle of the cage, and. You know, he couldn't pull off a takedown, but he was still able to kind of drag uh, Robbie Lawler to the ground and just get him closer to him, as close as possible, holding him close to him so he doesn't get any of his, any of his power off. So he was fine with ending up on the bottom in that third round just because he knew that the, the power coming from Robbie Lawler wasn't as significant as it would be if they were in the standing in the striking range. So I'm liking everything that we're seeing from Neil as of late. And I just don't see where Michael Chiesa really beats him outside of possibly submitting him in that first or second round. Now people might bring in the whole MMA math thing. Oh, Michael Chiesa just ragged all Rafael Dos Anjos for three rounds. And, and uh, you know, um, Dos Anjos was able to go out there and submit Neil Magny with an arm triangle choke in that first round. So that should mean that Chiesa should be able to do the same thing. But I just, I, I don't think that will be the case. I think that Chiesa is going to have some issues in terms of trying to get him down um, and, and keeping him down. And uh, if most people remember the, the the takedown or takedown per se from Dos Anjos against uh, Neil Magny came from a leg kick. He just whipped a leg kick at uh, Neil Magny. Uh, Neil Magny wilts under that power and then he ends up with Dos Anjos on top of him. Not a place that you really want to be again with again with a guy like Dos Anjos. So I think if Neil Magny gets past that round and a half mark, it, it's going to be smooth sailing. And I wouldn't even be surprised to see Neil Magny potentially get a late finish in this fight too. I think he's very live, especially if Michael Kies is gas tank is not going to be able to hold up in those third fourth and fifth rounds so uh, i like neil here I, I just think that he's going to be able to to make it uncomfortable for kiesa stay in his face with his punches with his pace and with his pressure and, and just start racking up the damage and and later in the fight it's going to start to pay dividends where we see magni magni really take over and uh, kiesa get a little bit too desperate with some shots and leaving him a little bit too vulnerable to the strikes of uh to the neo magni uh, onslaught that's going to be coming later in fights so i'll go with neo magni uh, i think he wins this fight pretty handily as long as it gets out of that first round and a half mark uh and yeah uh, again i think he's live for a late finish too so I'm, I'm gonna go with probably neo magni with the fourth round tko here uh and yeah i, I like him in this spot especially in this main event spot especially with it being a five rounds to it heavily favors Neil Magny here. So once again, I'm going with Neil the Gazelle Magny to win this fight via fourth round TKO. And those are the breakdowns. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Again, apologies for the late drop here, but uh, it's a busy, busy week. We got the event on Wednesday and then we got the event on Saturday. So if you're watching this now, the UFC 257 uh, podcast should be dropping on Tuesday, which is tomorrow. So you guys can look out for that. But if you guys you know again if you guys want to support your boy hit up the patreon that's where i'll be posting all my breakdowns for ufc 257 first which should be tonight so if you guys want to go check that out you're more than welcome to otherwise you can wait till the full podcast drops on the tuesday all right 
Once again, Patreon link is in the description below. I'm always going to plug it. I appreciate everybody supporting your boy. If you haven't already subscribed to the YouTube channel, make sure you guys do that as well too. That's the bare minimum I can ask is subscribing and liking the video. Get your boy in the algorithm. Get me a little bit more, you know, get, let's get some more sand under if you were, we're able to truly create a base for ourselves. And it's all thanks to you guys. So appreciate you guys checking me out on a week to week basis, even after an abysmal event like last time around. But I hope to uh, right these wrongs with this event coming up, um, these next two events coming up. All right. Good luck on your bets. And uh, I'll be seeing plenty more of you guys throughout this week with my streams on odds, my my fight day stream, um, and more streams for odds, uh, and then obviously the other podcasts as well. All right, good luck on your bets, and I'll see you guys soon.